All right, well, before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is August 2nd, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking with Robert Ducombe, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born on September 3, 1943, uh, in South Bend, Indiana. Okay, and what were your parents' names? My father, I, I, I'm junior, Robert James Ducombe Jr., so my dad was Robert James Ducombe Sr., and my mother was Lucy Azalea Ducombe. Her maiden name was Cotter, and, okay. and she was, they were both raised in South Bend. They were a high school romance that turned into marriage during World War II. Yeah, wow, okay, that's yeah. interesting. And uh, when did your family first get to Indiana? I don't really know the answer to that question. I have, re- I have researched back. Yeah. My great-grandfather uh, was a farmer in Lakeville. Okay. And he and his, one of his brothers served in the Civil War. And, I have, oh. and I've been going through you know, family pictures and stuff, and I found a little tiny, I guess you'd call it tenotype, of four oh, wow. Civil War soldiers. And I know one of them must be my great-grandfather because nobody else would have kept it, you know, except sure. the family. But I, I can't identify, you know, which one he is. Yeah. But, uh, so they were here before that, but that's really as far back as I have traced the family. Uh, there is uh, another member of the family found that uh, the first Ducombs came in like 1803 into Baltimore. Oh, okay. Um, and, but it's not a very big family. I mean, nationwide, you know, there might be six or eight or ten families that we've been able to, I've been able to find. Yeah. You know, that came, you know, probably all came over from France in the early 1800s. Yeah, that's neat. Okay. Uh, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my father was a, an attorney, and his, my mother basically did, she worked um, in manufacturing jobs before they got married, worked for Singer Sewing and a couple of other companies like that. And then while, um, you know, wh- you know, while my dad was practicing law, occasionally she would go in, you know, and be an office assistant and work in the office. But she did not really work uh, out of the out, outside of the home yeah. very much during most of my life. Okay. And did you have any siblings? I had one brother named Dale. Um, when I was a senior in high school, we moved up to Cassopolis, Michigan, where I still have a home, and um, he went to the Cassopolis High School. Hmm, okay. uh, he, he was in the Army. He got uh, sick in the Army the, and during uh, training, uh, but still was, you know, recovered enough to spend his two years, and then he became a Mishawaka police officer oh, okay. in uh, Mishawaka, Indiana. Uh, where he served for 25 or 30 years, uh, and unfortunately he had a health condition and he passed away at age 50, okay. which was a big blow to my mother sure. at that time. And anyway, she was, you know, I guess so unhappy, you know, about him passing at such a young age uh, that she had kind of a small stroke, and then she came to live with us mm-hmm. the last three years of her life. Okay. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I was grateful to be able to take care of her uh, yeah. in the home, and you know, keep, she actually, you know, I kept her out of the hospital pretty much. Um, yeah. You know, till near the end when we had hospice, then come to the house and help. It was, it, it was a very big learning experience for me, and very moving and emotional. Yeah. 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 Definitely. 
Um, how would you describe your childhood? Um, blessed. I had a, yeah. I had a you know, really good childhood. Uh, in, in Cassopolis, Michigan, there's a, a lake called Diamond Lake, and my grandparents owned a cottage there. I spent every summer as a kid up at the lake, um, on the lake, you know, had a boat and boating and all those kinds of activities. I was the paper boy for two or three years, and then my brother was. Uh, the lake has an island, and the, uh, there's a ferry that goes from the mainland to the island, and I worked the ferry for a couple of summers, you know, before college. Okay. And then my brother did. He was four years younger than I am, and he worked it. And um, it was just really a blessing to be at the lake in the summers and um, went to a good high school and had a lot of friends, and uh, some of whom I see still see regularly. Um, so, I, you know, I think that was really very good for my life and you know uh so i was very you know i felt very happy and a good you know not that there weren't ups and downs you know sure because there always are but it was a looking back on it it was a very lucky childhood and uh, being at the lake having my grandparents and i had a great aunt involved in my life uh you know from a very young age and as my dad said i was spoiled by all these women while he was off at war <laughs> so i was expecting to be treated like that the rest of my life which quite didn't quite work out <laughs> yeah <laughs> naturally yeah right now uh what did you know about your family's politics growing up well i knew that my grandfather uh my grandfather had uh, three brothers so mm -hmm. there were four brothers in that family all raised in lakeville and of the th three of the four brothers were became lawyers and practicing in South Bend. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I've learned just recently that one of my great uncles, my uncle Clifford, uh, actually ran for um, as a Republican for uh, the Court of Appeals some time mm -hmm. back. And I, I didn't get the exact date, but I found a poster you know, yeah. showing that he was running. But what I first knew about was my grandfather, who was elected the city judge in South Bend, and then he ran unsuccessfully for uh, mayor and had been very active in politics. Um, that you know, and then from the you know the days I can remember, my dad was always involved in politics, more on the organizational side. Um, he was uh, campaign manager for candidates. He became uh, district chairman uh, for the state, which uh, for Republican district chairman for the third district, third congressional district, and uh, served on the state committee for a number of years. Wow and was very involved in the organizational side. Uh, when I was 15, my father ran for prosecutor in St. Joe County, which was, you know, was about a two to one or more Democrat majority, of course, running as a Republican. Um, it was a very uh, nasty campaign because of the allegations of the misconduct by the prosecutor at that time. Mm. You know, I remember getting phone calls at home from people threatening us, you know, because wow. my father was raising these allegations, and unfortunately he did lose the election. Um, uh, two years before that, in 1956, he had been the campaign manager for his law partner, uh, F.J. Nimps, who also became my law partner when I got out of law school, and F.J. was successfully uh, elected to Congress in 56. 
but unfortunately, in the, you know the the sixth year of Eisenhower's uh, presidency in 1958, he got swept out in a big Democrat, uh, you know, kind of landslide, yeah. and never returned to Congress. I think he did run once one more time, but still, but still lost. Um, so I grew up in a political environment. There's no question about that. And you yeah. know, we talked about politics. We had it in the House. Uh, you know, you know, obviously. Uh, when I first, uh, I went to law school at IU, and when I joined uh, my dad in FGA to practice law, uh, and that was in 1969, I mean, the, the place was full of politics. Uh, yeah. I mean, politicians would come and talk to my dad, you know, who were looking to run for statewide office, um, you know, they would come in and, you know, in, you know, you know, try to get his support, um, and I followed him down. Uh, to a state convention when they were, you know, still pick, you know, everything was, there were no primaries. Everybody yeah. was being picked, you know, in a convention and watched, you know, how that all worked. Um, so, you know, I had, I had a lot of politics. I really, you know, and I enjoyed it. That's one of the reasons that I did run for the legislature. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, your family was pretty politically involved then, correct? Yes, right? very much so. Yeah. Wow. Um, now, before law school, where did you go to school? I went to Indiana University. Okay. Uh, and I graduated in three years. I went to summer school, mm -hmm. and um, my degree was in it was liberal arts and what they called government, which was political science. That was my okay. degree. That's what I was drawn to. Um, and uh, then I went to law school, you know, right after that. Okay. And... Uh, when you were, where'd you go to high school? Uh, South Bend Central High School. Okay. Which is now an apartment project, and the, the school is gone. You oh, know, wow. It's been closed, yeah. It okay. was closed um, in the early 80s, I think, or late 70s okay. sometime, yeah. Yeah, interesting. We still have reunions. Okay, that's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Won't be mini reunions, I no, guess. That's what, no, not, well, yeah. they're starting to diminish. It's, it's like an all-school reunion now. Ah, yeah, know. yeah. We okay. haven't had one just for our class in a while, but yeah. an all-school reunion. Yeah, it's always strange to hear schools that close. That's, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the, they started building them in the suburbs, and people started living to moving to the suburbs. Yeah. So that's, you know, they built the schools and yeah. eventually closed Central. And they actually were going to tear it down, but it had been built in the early 1900s, and it was so well built that it would cost more to tear it down than it was to renovate it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so Jeez. they decided to turn it into apartments. <laughs> that's interesting also. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any favorite subjects in high school? or? Well, I, I actually took a lot of math and really enjoyed math. Um, I would say that the... You know, I liked history, but uh, it was not as well taught as the math. We had a very good math mm -hmm. uh, faculty uh, in South Bend, and in English also. My great aunt uh, had been a high school teacher at Central. She'd retired by the time I got there, but you know, some of the people on the English faculty still re remembered her. She taught me a lot of English in the summers. She taught me phonics, and which wasn't being taught then in schools. You know, it kind of comes and goes. Uh, I read, you know, I mean, she, I read a lot, uh, you know, growing up. You know, so I loved English. I loved stories. Yeah. I loved books. So I liked all that. Um, and, but, you know, math was, you know, was a draw just because the faculty was so good. Yeah. And a lot of my friends were taking higher math. And I just, you know, I mean, I ended up taking calculus and maybe even differential equations wow. in uh, high school. 
Uh, and I continued a little bit in college, but then, you know, when I got really good teachers in politics and history and government, you know, I was drawn much, drawn much more to that and kind of gave up math. Yeah, yeah. At that point. Um, were you part of any clubs or sports teams in high school or college? No. Well, I was a, in a fraternity. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had a lot of activities. I was in the senior play and, and not a very glorious role. Okay. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, you know, I can't really remember, you know, I was always active, but I can't really remember the specifics that I was, you know, of clubs and stuff. I had friends, we, you know, we played basketball together, but um, my basketball career ended in junior high when um, I realized that there were people who could run faster backwards than I could forwards. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and jump up and grab the rim when I'd be lucky to jump up and grab the underside of the net. So uh, after yeah. that, it was just kind of what you'd call intramural. And yeah. I enjoyed it a lot, but I, you know, I was never good enough to be on the team. But I went to the games and sure. cheered them on. Okay. Um, How did you view Indiana growing up? Um, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a, you know, a farmer state. I mean, there were farms everywhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was home. You know, I really liked it. I liked South Bend. Uh, you know, I liked Southern Michigan where we went in the yeah. summers. Um, you know, I viewed it as kind of a, a, you know, solid Midwestern state. Uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't travel a lot because we spent our summers, you know, at the lake. Sure. So I didn't have a lot of experience with other states. Um, but you know, farming was big. You know, so I knew there was it was a very important part of the of the landscape. Um, and uh, you know, I think while I was in high school, you know, Studebaker's closed, which was a big economic, you know, calamity for the whole city. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of businesses, subsidiary businesses, you know, that made parts for Studebaker. You know, Bendix was in South Bend, made making breaks. Um, you know, a lot of those. People suffered, you know, tremendously yeah. when Studebaker did close. Um, but I think that was, you know, when I got back to practicing law, you know, after, uh, you know, 10 years or so after Studebaker closed, the city was, you know, improving substantially. There was a good, you know, there were financial institutions associated. Associated finance was very big at that time, um, you know, which subsequently got sold. And you know, left town, you know, like a lot of them sure. do. Um, but you know, smaller businesses were were picking up, um, and it, you know, it began to look more prosperous by the time I was, you know, I got out of law school. Uh, but that, I mean, that the, the closing of Studebakers, and that was that was tough on the town. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, now, what were your goals after you graduated from college? What was your plan? Well, after graduating from college, my plan was to go to law school. Uh, during my college, I went through ROTC, so I went it, I immediately went into the service after I graduated from law. I mean, I graduated from law school in June, took the bar exam in, in early July, and, you know, by the end of July, I was in the Army. Okay. Um, and I served for two years as a military policeman. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how do you view your college experiences? Um, they were, they were good experiences. I, you know, I made friends, um, some good friends still have till this day. Um, 
you know, my academics were good. They weren't, you know, nobody was looking to me to be valedictorian, but I, yeah. you know, I did well in college, um, did well in law school. Um, so, you know, and mostly it was positive. Met my wife in, in college as an, as an undergraduate. We got married in 1966. Yeah. You know, so I had a, we had a year or so, year or two dating before, um, you know, we got, before we got married. We got married before my last year of law school. Yeah. Um, okay. So I had five years as a bachelor and one year as a married man on campus. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was very positive, very loyal to IU, uh, you know, to this day. I, you know, I feel like it was a very, very good experience. It was a great place to go to college. Um, we went back there this summer. Um, we went to a family reunion down in, at McCormick's Creek, and we went over and spent a couple of days in Bloomington, had dinner with Steve Moberly. I don't know if you've yep. interviewed him. Yep. Uh, he's remained a good friend from those days. I mean, I knew him in college, but got to know him a lot better in the legislature, and sure. we remained friends with him. Um, so it was very, uh, you know, it was very positive. You know? Yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, the further you are away from it, the more positive it looks. Sure. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. Um, did your awareness of politics change when you were in college and in law school? Uh, not really. I mean, the, I mean, one of the things you learn in law school, you know, uh, you know, they taught it a little differently then than they do now, I think, um, is how things work in the world. You know, you, you, you study, you study contracts, you know, how contracts, you know, guide the business world. Yeah. And you, you know, you study the, the legal system, the, the criminal law and the you know the procedures and everything and you really learn how things work and a lot of you know a couple of people that I went to law school with you know went into you know became lawyers and went into business as opposed to being you know remaining in the in the practice of law yeah um but most I think most of the guys I went to law school with stayed in you know stayed in the law but you learn that's what you learn is how things work and part of that is you know, one of the things that was amazing to me, like you have to take federal income tax, you know, which I dreaded even thinking about. Yeah. You know, one thing, one, because it changes every year, as we all know, sure. when we try to do our tax returns. But what was interesting about that was the political reasons that there were certain things in the IRS code. You know, you sort of get a sprinkling of that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how the IRS works, you know, kind of then how Congress works. You know, obviously business lobbyists are putting things in yep. to, the, to the code, you know. So you're kind of learning that, which I was learning at that time. And we also, I also took a course in legislative drafting uh, uh, while I was there. And, you know, that, you know, how to draft bills and, you know, how that works, you know, how the statutes are come together a little bit, you know, through the process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, I got a little more practical knowledge of, you know, how, how some of these things work, um, you know, because it never occurred to me that the Internal Revenue Code was so politically driven, but obviously sure. it is, and it seems even more so, you know, today that yeah. the politics is driving what's in that in the code and, you know, how the taxes are levied and who gets all the, who gets breaks and all that is yep. driven very much by politics. And so, you know, I was exposed to that. So I, you know, that was more the practical side of politics. I'd been exposed because of my dad and FJ, you know, to the, you know, put up the posters, you know, walk the streets, you know, do door to door, 
you know, do advertising, that kind of stuff. The political campaigns yeah. I'd been exposed to and been involved in, you know, t- you know, not surely not as much as when I was my own campaign, but uh, quite a bit. And, you know, there was always a lot of talk about doing that and what had to be done and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Sure. So, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was kind of a nice blending of both of those by the time I was out of college. You know, I'd had the practical experience, plus now I was getting, you know, some of the practical you know, this is what happens in politics type mm-hmm. stuff from stuff that I learned in law school. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, when did you have any children? Yes, I have two children. Okay. Um, my older daughter, Darby, is an attorney living in Seattle. With uh, We have two grandchildren oh, okay. there. And then my younger daughter, Dana, lives in Phoenix, where we lived for a number of years after we left Indiana. And she has two children, uh, both are still in high school. Both of my Darby's kids, one is grad, out of college and the other one has just started college. Yeah. So okay. they're of that age and it's kind of interesting to see what they're doing. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, um, well, I mean, just as an aside, sure. Darby, my daughter Darby married another lawyer. She went to law school and married a lawyer. Okay. And they're, you know, they're still married. My daughter Dana married a. Uh, immigrant coming from the country of Colombia. Oh, that's interesting. And he got to America with like a fourth grade education. Wow. And he went, he started going to the junior colleges in in, in um, Phoenix. Yeah. Got a GED, graduated from junior college, went to ASU, and then wanted to be a lawyer. He came back to Indianapolis and lived here for three years and went to the Indianapolis Law school. Wow. And graduated from IU and is now practicing law. We practiced together for a number of years in Phoenix before I retired, and he's now practicing in Phoenix. Wow, that's pretty and amazing. So the law is our, there's been the family business. <laughs> I guess Although so. I, I mean, Darby's two kids look more interested in business than they are in the law. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea what my, uh, my one grandson will be a senior in um, high school, and he's looking at college, he thinks he might want to be an engineer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But yeah. It's, a, you know, the world is different now. Yeah, it's it, true. It might be better to be an engineer or in business than to be a lawyer. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a bigger struggle for lawyers now than it used to be, the way yeah. the law is organized. Yeah. 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 I guess so. It's true. Yeah. It's interesting to see how, yeah, what employment, how employment options change over time. Yeah. With, well, I think it's harder for, you know, young kids coming out of school to find jobs because company law firms just don't offer jobs like they used to. You know? Yeah. And so a lot of them have to strike out on their own and, you know, you're not always taught, you know, how to, you know, and when you start out on your own, you're a businessman as much yeah, as you're a much. lawyer. Yeah. And uh, that's not why a lot of people go to law school. So yeah. I think it's tougher now uh, yeah. to get started. I mean, because I was very lucky. I got started with my dad and his law partner. And so that was... That was a very easy transition. Definitely. Sure. Um, so when did you start thinking about running for office and getting involved in well, politics? It was always kind of in the back of my mind. Yeah. But I would say what happened in 1970 reapportionment mm-hmm. of the legislature um, accelerated, you know, my thinking. Yeah. Um, because until then, there had not been a Republican elected from St. Joseph County, Indiana, for 40 years. Wow. But and be, and you know, at the for many for most of those years, they elected five members of the legislature 
you know, all in a group from yes, know, from yeah. South Bend. You know, and at that time, I think they were electing 15 from Indianapolis, all in a group. You know, it was either 15 Republicans or 15 Democrats. But in St. Joe County, it was always Democrat at that particular time. So the prospects of doing that were pretty, you know, yeah. pretty slim. And the Congress, you know, the Congress was... Uh, a long-serving congressman, John Bradamus, you know, so that never that didn't look like an avenue. But, you know, somehow I got information, maybe my dad got it, about the reapportionment uh, of the legislature. And they uh, ha- happily, I lived in a township called Clay Township, which was put in a district uh, with some, uh, mostly it was St. Joseph County, northern St. Joseph County, but there was also some in Elkhart, and I, just, I lived in the district. Yeah, and I think the I think the Constitution requires you have to live in the district for two years, you know, before you run. So um, I lived there for two years. By the time 1972 came along, which was the first election that that reapportionment applied to. Yeah, and so I mean, anyway, I got the I got all the precinct voting uh, stuff uh, from you know the historic historic for the historic information for that district. And I looked at it, and my dad looked at it, and it looked like there was a possibility that a Republican could win. I mean, there were a lot of Democrats in it. Sure. You know, it was a, you know, a little bit Republican-leaning, but, you know, you, it wasn't overwhelming Republican like they do the districts now. Right. But it was, you know, as, as, as we would say, the Republican had a chance, we felt like. And it was a two-member district. Um, and, you know, there was no Democrat incumbent, uh, uh, I don't think, that of any note in the district at that time because they lived in other parts of the sit- of the county. So, I, you know, I looked at it and thought, well, you know, I have a chance, so I'm going to do it. And uh, got a lot of encouragement from my father and other people. I'd, I'd been involved in a... The Clay, there's a Clay, was a Clay Township Republican Club, and I'd been involved in that since I got back to town in 69, because that's where I lived in the Clay Township. Yeah. And made a lot of friends there. I actually became the president of the club after a year or so being there. And, um, you know, so I had kind of a base of support in that area, you know, to get started. And several of the people encouraged me to run. And so I did. And, uh, you know, I remember the lobbyists for the, uh, I mean, one of the, some of the things you remember, for the Teachers Association you know, came to interview me about the, you know, about my thoughts. And, you know, it was kind of that was over. They said, oh, you know, why the hell are you running? Republican hasn't won up here for years and years and years. You know, why are you wasting your time doing that? So I got my stuff out, you know, and showed them how it was a potential, you know, like it was a potential to win. And, the, you know, they hadn't even looked at it like that so much. Um, so, you know, anyway, you know, that was kind of an interesting conversation. But, you know, but you have you know you have to look at that you have to look at that kind of stuff and that that's what I learned you know from my dad and FJ you know this is what you have to look at and I was successful and I saw you know it was the you know it was the Nixon landslide year so that made it a lot a lot easier. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, what was your campaign strategy when you were running for office? Well, there was a man in South Bend called Jim Carroll, who was a good friend of my dad's, and he was a PR-type guy. And basically it was, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer, I was in the Army, you know, I, I care about, you know, I care about the community, I care about, uh, you know, the environment, um, 
And, you know, he came up with some themes. One of them was, you know, clean air and clean water was one of the themes that yeah. I used, you know, which is still, unfortunately, issues today. <laughs> yes. even, even more so with the clean air. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of thing. You know, and then just, you know, basically, you know, my family's connection, you know, particularly in the Republican primary to the, to the community and their involvement. Um, you know, and I thought, you know, being a lawyer... Uh, and, um, you know, having served in the service, you know, this was the Vietnam era and all that was, you know, some people thought that was patriotic. Other people thought, you know, you were nuts for being in the service. Uh, and I, you know, I was in voluntarily, you know, I wasn't drafted, you know, I went through ROTC, um, you know, all of that just, I mean, a lot of it was just, you know, here I am, I'm a good guy. I'm running, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to talk, talk politics, you know, on this stump on the stump, so to speak. Sure. You know, I went to every meeting I was invited to, you know, and was happy to do, did a lot of, did a lot of the door-to-door campaigning. Um, and, you know, that was, <coughs> excuse me, that was also the year of the property tax relief issue. <coughs> and I met Doc Bowen. He came, he came to St. Joe County a lot. He lived down in Bremen, got to know him, mm-hmm. you know, uh, talk to the, you know, the state people about the property tax. And then we, you know, I became very much in favor of the property tax relief because it was, you know, a getting out of hand proportionally, you know, to other kind of taxes. Sure. And, um, and that, you know, that became a big campaign issue as the campaign went along. Um, I mean, I think Doc Bowen was pretty much running on that a lot. You know, he'd been in the legislature. You know, he knew what needed to be done from a statewide basis, and I kind of took his guidance on that. And you know, we we I don't I want to say we became friends, but we certainly became acquaintances. And yeah, the campaign trail, and you know, we tried to help him as best we could, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so that all kind of worked out. But that was the big issue in. Um, in nineteen, you know, in nineteen seventy-two, that I think, you know, that and of course it was just a, you know, a big landslide year. So, yeah, uh, in our in our area, I mean, I I can't remember if Nixon uh, carried St. Joe County, but I mean, he carried my district, uh, you know, about as you know about as heavy as you could. Sure. I, the one point of pride is I did get a few more votes than he did. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I felt good about that. But, yeah. You know, so that, um, I mean, that was kind of the theme of that year. And, of course, when we got to the legislature, mm-hmm. you know, we tried to, um, you know, I did anyway. Um, a few Republicans didn't, at, but we had so many. You know, we had 73, I think, or, yeah, 73 Republicans I mean, it was a, in the legislature, which was an overwhelming number. I mean, they have yeah. that, those kind of numbers now. Uh, and it was kind of unwieldy, but we were, you know, I mean, I would, I helped as best I could, you know, to push the property tax relief stuff through for the governor. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, you mentioned that you did some door-to-door campaigning. Yeah. Uh, did you have any interesting, like, experiences doing that or any kind of funny stories? I know that can always be kind of uh, uh, well, I, interesting. Yeah, I can't, I can't push it. I can't. I mean, this particular story, yeah. I can't say, you know, it happened. I mean, because I, I did door-to-door in every campaign. Sure, sure. Um, but I remember being in some, in one neighborhood where um, the overwhelming smell of cat <laughs> got out to the, you know, got out almost to the street. Oh, know? wow, okay. <laughs> and, um, but, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, the two things that happened to me were... Um, 
you know, people who would come to the door and take the literature and, you know, just be totally indifferent. So you had no idea, <laughs> yeah. you know, they wouldn't react at all. Right. You know, I'd try to engage them in conversation and they wouldn't react. And I mean, I think that's probably not unusual. Sure. And I had uh, stuff designed, uh, you know, door hangers, you know, so if you nobody was there, you could just leave it on the door. And, of course, other friends could go from place to place you know, and just leave the door hangers. I had people doing that for me, yeah. you know, who were putting the door hangers on, you know, in other neighborhoods. Um, and I would say, in the, particularly in the first campaign, I got a lot of people who recognized my name, you know, knew my father, even knew my grandfather in those days, um, even though he'd been <clears throat> passed away for a while. So, I mean, that was always, I guess, encouraging. Yeah. Um, and I tried to go... Um, uh, you know, I was, you know, you're always looking for kind of the the independent vote, you know, the swing vote. Yeah. So I was trying to go to neighborhoods that didn't, in my district, they didn't always vote overwhelmingly Republican, you know, look, you're looking to be there, you know, quote, show the flag a little bit, I guess would be sure. the right word. And, you know, try to pick up a few of those, <clears throat> which is why I think I ran a little bit ahead of Nixon in that Uh so that was one of, and then we did another. We did another technique, which at that time nobody had thought of, but I, I thought of it. Luckily, mm-hmm. um, in those days, you had to write. You know, you had to prepare an application for an absentee ballot, and they went. You know, they were mailed into the clerk's office, and there weren't that many. Yeah. Like there are now, there's much more of that kind of voting now than there was then, but there it was significant numbers, and. Um, even though the you know the Democrats had the clerk's office, you know I was able uh, you know with some help from a couple other people, my dad maybe, um, to convince them that those were public records that I that I had a right to see. Mm-hmm. So when the applications came in, I said those you know I have the right to see you know I'd like to see them. Anyway, they let they set it up. We set we were able to set it up that I could go in or somebody from my campaign could go in and write down the names and addresses of the people who had applied for an absentee ballot. Yeah. And we would immediately send them a letter, uh, maybe even a postcard, a letter with, um, you know, my literature and, you know, please vote for me. And I think that's another one of the reasons that, you know, I kind of did so well is that I, you know, and, you know, getting extra votes from, you know, there were precincts later when we looked at them where, you know, I got practically every absentee ballot, whether they were Republican or Democrat, because sure. they got the literature from me, you know, right about the time they got their ballot in the mail. Yeah. And now, I mean, I think it's harder now to um, make that timing, but it was just very fortunate timing that I was able to do that. Um, and, I, you know, that technique, I think, worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um and then the other thing that we that I did, that, and I kept that out through my other campaign. After a while, they, they, you know, they said I couldn't keep getting the names because <laughs> they saw how effective it had been. And, you know, so I didn't, you know, I couldn't do that every year. Yeah. But I, we did little postcards, and I found them the other day, and I was going through my stuff, which we would mail to every voter in a district mm-hmm. that had, you know, that showed how to, you know, where my lever was, you know, by the, num- by the number of my lever, where to push my lever, and, you know, tell them where to go vote. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we mailed those like three or four or five days before, 
the the uh, election. You know, so everybody was getting them on Saturday or Monday, hopefully, yeah. before the election. And the feedback, you know, I, people work the polls on election day, you know, passing out my literature, and they, you know, they, people. Person after person was coming in holding that postcard. You know, it just really worked well. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, those are the kind of things that, that we did that I think separated us from other candidates who were running. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, find any way you can get that. Well, you, well you, you know, you want to get, you know, you want to get information out. You know, yeah. it's the first time I had run. So I was, you know, basically running on you know the fam- you know the family's involvement in politics yeah. the fact that I was educated and been in, you know was supporting you know Doc Bowen and, um, which I did you know I felt very strongly about him after I got to know him sure. which I did get to know him in that first campaign um, and that was one of the things that was kind of interesting and you know sort of shocking to me because in my part of the state which was St. Joe County and Elkhart County were the two counties I I had to work um, you know, people just really liked Doc Bowen, you know, because, you, you know, he came from close by, yeah. and he was just, I mean, he was very likable, I think, you know, if, I don't know if you ever met him, or, yeah, 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 he just was a likable, he was a country doctor, and just everything you can imagine of what a country doctor was, he was, and just a great guy, and, um, you know, so they were flabbergasted, you know, you know, the, if anybody would be, a, you know, any Republican would be against Doc Bowen at the time. You know, he mm-hmm. just was that popular in our area. You know, get down to the legislature, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, we have a big majority, and all of a sudden it's pulling teeth to get the Republicans to, you know, put up 51 or 52 votes yeah. to pass the property tax relief, which everybody ran on, and which was overwhelmingly... Supported, you know, by the, you know, you know, by a lot of voters. I mean, yeah. some people are indifferent, but I mean, a lot of voters really were, you know, liked that prospect. But of course, we had to raise another tax. You know, mm-hmm. we had to raise. I think we raised the sales tax in order to pay for it. Sure. Uh, and you know, uh, anyway, I, I was just surprised when we got working on it that how hard it was to get it passed. Um, you know, in the you know, with the overwhelming Republican majorities in you know both houses at that time because of how the election worked out and how many people were willing to, you know, you know, th- uh, thumb their nose a little bit at Doc Bowen. A lot of whom had served in the legislature with him when he was speaker. You know, they'd known him a lot longer than I had. So, yeah. You know, that was a su- a surprise and a disappointment to me. You know, in my first couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, now. Who was your main opponent when you first ran for office? Another lawyer by the name of Schmidt. Um, okay. I can't remember who the other opponent was at that time. The first time I ran, because um, I didn't, we didn't do, you know, I didn't really, wasn't really on the hustings with them so much. Yeah. You know, um, but then the, the second time I ran was when it got more interesting because it was a two-person district, mm-hmm. and the other Republicans was a man by the name of Rick Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And the um, Dick Bodine, who, had, who was running for lieutenant governor in 1972, and of course lost because you know Doc Bowen and Bob Orr ran, was from Mishawaka, which was in part of my district. And he decided he wanted to return to the legislature. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, in my second election, which was 1974, which was right after Watergate, you know, when yeah. you know when everything I thought I was 
I had to hide, you know, sure. Republican, lawyer, incumbent, yeah, you know, right. those three things, which I thought I'd run on in 74, yeah. you know, were all, I mean, Republicans and lawyers and incumbents were going to jail or, you know, being run out of office because of the dishonesty relating, relating to Watergate. Um, and there, here's Dick Bodine, who has, you know, been elected many times from Mishawaka to the legislature, had been speaker at one time, you know, was a statewide candidate for governor, was now running against me. Yeah. And, um, and the, I mean, the, the thing that they did, uh, which was probably a mistake in the long run, is they went out and recruited Pat Bauer. I don't know, you may, you may have, yeah, you know, Pat Bauer's him, yeah. sister to run against me. So, oh, okay. so on the ballot, it was Bauer, Bodine, and it was Ducombe, uh, Lindsay, uh, Rick Lindsay. Yeah. So I, you know, Bauer, you know, if you looked at it, you thought I was running against Bauer instead of Bodine. Okay. You know. Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, 74 was a, was a very bad year. Yeah. Um, and so I, I mean, I, I, I campaigned almost as if I was a Democrat. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't want to disparage my opponent, but uh, Pat's sister did not have a lot of experience. Yeah. You know, did not want to, you know, she just wanted to, you know, I mean, they had a very powerful political name. Sure. Bernie Bauer, her dad, had been in the Senate for a long time, was in the Senate at that time. Pat was in the legislature at that time from different parts yeah. of the county, but they had a very powerful name. And so she didn't, she didn't go even to Democrat function. So I started doing that. I started yeah. going to Democrat. And, of course, I'd go there, and there would be people that I knew from the courthouse, from the clerk's office, from the yeah. treasurer's office, you know. So somebody would always talk to me, although <laughs> they wouldn't always do that. Sure. But I, so I started, you know, I started doing a lot of that campaigning, you know, um, you know, trying to get, hopefully get Democrat votes, because it really did look like a Democrat year in 74. And it was, as a matter of fact, a very big Democrat wow. year. And, I mean, we went from 73 to 37. You know, we went from the majority to the minority mm -hmm. in overwhelming numbers. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I don't blame the people. I mean, the, the National Party, you know, Nixon and that crowd had been very dishonest in a lot yeah. of ways. And, um, you know, that we all, you know, a lot of people paid the penalty for it, but I was able to survive. I, I mean, I worked really hard. The campaign, I probably worked the hardest, did the most door to door. Yeah. You know, raised the most amount of money, you know, to spend. Sure. And, but, you know, but Dick Bodine got elected too. I mean, so now we had a district that was split, one Republican and one Democrat. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting how those things work out. Yeah, it is interesting. It was interesting. I mean, I really thought I probably, it was probably the end for me yeah. that year. I mean, I, I think a lot of people were concerned yeah, about that. And so I was very grateful to win that election. And uh, yeah. So um, what did you think of the election process when you're running all these different campaigns? Um, I, I thought it was a fair process. Um, the, you know, the I've always found um, that the clerks, you know, the people who are, you know, conscientious who sit there on election day, um, I mean, I'm assuming they still do it the same way, but there were, you know, like three Republicans and three Democrats, you know, almost every precinct, yeah. um, who were election officials. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, they, they were interested in the election being done right. You know, they were honest, you know, they worked, you know, they worked hard at it, you know, they, um, you know, there was always a meeting the night before, 
and then the you know I I, I worked the polls. I was a precinct committeeman for a while, yeah. so I had to work my precinct. Yeah. Uh, and so I got involved in how all the mechanics worked. That was the day of the voting machine. You know, you, you push a little lever, you know, mm-hmm. to, to vote. And um, those are long gone. Everything is computerized, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I thought the elections was, you know, were fair. I thought they were well done. I was very happy. You know, I mean, the people from both parties, you know, weren't trying to get... And... Um, so I mean, I, I thought the process was 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 very good. You know, it was honest, and you know, and um, I didn't see you know I didn't see any problem. I still don't. I mean, I yeah. know there's been a big controversy, yeah. but in the last in the last in the 2020 election, yeah. which has become a big controversy, I went and sat in a precinct um, in Cass County, Michigan, for the day. Yeah, and I mean, I thought the procedures were fabulous mm-hmm. you know they were yeah. you know they had people they checked everybody's id i mean the the people that worked there i mean they knew half the people that came in you know i mean it, which is what you want in a precinct you know i mean that sure. was the way it was in the precinct i was in in clay township the people that worked the worked the precinct i mean they knew you know half the people that came in to vote you know they knew the republicans and half the democrats that came in to vote in that you know in our precinct and that's the way it was in this one in in cass county um, you know, they were, you know, and in fact, I asked the person who was in the woman who was in charge, there was a little law at one point, and I said, well, what's the vote here? I mean, is it two to one Republican, two to one Democrat? What is this? I have no idea. I'm just here to do it right. Yeah. You know, and, um, they all were, they all, they all were that way. They were, you know, they were totally bipartisan during the whole process yeah. up there in Cass County. It's the way it was, as I remembered from, um, you know, from St. Joe County, and I, you know, I just thought the process was good. And, yeah. you know, big controversy in Michigan, but you know, if, they, if all the precincts did it the way the precinct I sat in, it was a very fair election. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it just, I mean, I think the people that are doing that, I mean, one, one, I think they're lying right now yeah. to everybody. I mean, Trump in particular is lying about <laughs> that. You know, he didn't win the election in yeah. Arizona, which I'm familiar with. Yep. He didn't win the election in Michigan, which I f- was familiar with personally. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just very unfortunate uh, sure. that the election process is being challenged when, you know, it really hasn't been, and it's been fair and honest for a couple of centuries, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, but, I mean one one funny story. Sure. <clears throat> about the about the precincts, because my dad was always involved. In the wet at that time, the west side of South Bend was very heavily Democrat, and so but the the Republican Party, uh, you know, had to find three people to be Republicans in all these heavy Democrat districts, and so they you know they found people, and I don't know if the party paid them. The party might have paid them, but I know they got paid by the county, so maybe the party didn't pay them. But they were supposed to be Republican precinct workers. Mm-hmm. You know, the ju- they were a judge and a clerk and something else that had specific responsibilities on election day. And my dad said, well, there are some precincts on the west side where we don't even get our poll workers to vote for us. You know? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so uh, that does happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what was your reaction when you first found out that you had won your very first election? Very excited. Yeah, absolutely excited. My father was incredibly happy. Well, um, we were we were incredibly happy. I was elated. Um, 
And it was one of the, my father was very happy, which I was very grateful to see. Um, I've got a picture of him smiling sitting in my house. Um, and I got to go down and be on TV that night. I think it might have been the first time I was interviewed on television that yeah. night. Because um, it was a surprise <laughs> that Republicans were winning yeah. legis- legislative seats in the county. Um, but it was, you know, it was a wonderful feeling. And I immediately started deciding what my uh, agenda might be in the legislature, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so I... Um, you know, anyway, it was a, a very exciting moment for the family and for my friends. We, you know, we probably had fifty or a hundred people in our little house, yeah, uh, celebrating the victory. Um, and there was, you know, there were other pockets of where people, you know, had um, parties that I, you know, I did a little travel around the county to two or three of those in, in my district, and um, it was a very exciting evening because you know I had no idea, what, you know, we had no idea what was going to happen, but. Yeah, you know, it was pretty clear early in the evening. The township that I was in did we did our own count, and uh, I was there at the at that little headquarters. You know, we had somebody run from each precinct or call in the votes from each precinct. Yeah. Um, and so we knew pretty early that you know we'd done really well in our area, and it, you know then it began to come in from other areas that, you know the. The, the, I had done well. My running partner Rick Lindsay had done well. We'd both done really well in that. I think we elected a state senator at that time too from that area. Uh, district was similar, but of course they weren't the same districts. Sure. And El- from Elkhart County, um, and it was just a great. You know, it was just a great. It was a great evening, and um, you know, I was very much looking forward to being in the legislature, uh, and I was very fortunate because. You know, I practiced law with my dad and F.J., who were, you know, had politics clear to their bone yep. and the interests of the community, uh, very much so. And so they were willing to help, you know, keep my law practice alive when I went off, you know, for two or three months. Um, you know, I'd come home on weekends and work on weekends at the, at the law practice. But, I mean, they were very, very supportive in every way you can imagine of my political activity, which, you know, probably would have been much harder. I mean, it would have been impossible if they hadn't been supportive. Yeah, of course. Um, but it was, I mean, that was one of the wonderful things about it. I mean, we just, uh, you know, the three of us in this building that they owned, it was, it was just wonderful, you know. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Awesome experience. Um, now, did you end up changing your campaign strategies throughout the course of your political career, or? Well, um, well, yes. I mean, obviously, you know, like I said, in 74, it was hard to run as, <laughs> as you know, as what I was, a lawyer and an incumbent, um, you know, and a Republican. Uh, so we down, you know, we downplayed that like, you know, people have done, you know, we downplayed all of those things. Yeah. Although, you know, they should have been things that were, uh, you know, would be very successful for a rerun yep. and, you know, ran more on just, you know, what I, you know, what I had done, you know, the proper tax relief and the other things I tried to do in the legislature. Um, and, you know, just on a, you know, on a personality, you know, type basis. Yeah. Um, and that was successful. Then later, I mean, later then it became more, you know, this is my legislative record you know, I've, you know, I've done all these, you know, I've done all these things. I've worked on, these are the kinds of things I've supported. You know, you need to keep supporting me because you want these kinds of things to, you know, to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, I got support. I mean, I was a strong, have, have been, was a strong supporter of public education. Um, caveat, you know, my wife was a public school teacher and my younger daughter was a public school teacher. But I, you know, my great aunt had been a public school teacher. But I had a, a, a strong affinity for, you know, supporting the public schools. Yeah. Um, and so I always had a lot of support from the, from the Indiana State Teachers Association because of that uh, support that I had for education, which a lot of, you know, eventually during my legislative process, they, they became, uh, they didn't support as many Republicans because Republicans weren't as supportive of public education. Yeah. But I always was, and, you know, they always supported me and always stayed in their corner. Uh, but that became less of a Republican selling point uh, mm-hmm. than it had, you know, in the beginning. Um, you know, we never really did much in my that I can remember in my legislative career, you know, for the you know pro environment. I mean, we weren't anti environment, but you know, people just we just wasn't a lot being done. Um, yeah. Um, so I you know didn't emphasize that kind of thing as much. Sure. But it was more running on my record. Um, you know, later on in the process, but I still, um, I mean, I still pounded door to door every every campaign. You know, uh, and uh, my district never changed, so it was always you know this. I mean, I try to go to, I try to hit as many neighborhoods as possible. You know, you couldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a hundred thousand people in the district. You know, you couldn't go to every door yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I had people that would go to other doors and you know put literature and. Mailbox. Well, they didn't put them in mailboxes. I'll take that back. But they weren't supposed to anyway. But right. Occasionally they did. <laughs> occasionally the post office would return a bunch to me with a nasty yeah. letter. You know, yeah. you're not supposed to put those in. But yeah. um, you know, I mean, the te- the techniques, the you know, the direct technique of trying to see as many voters as possible. I mean, all of my legislative career, I would send out letters. You know, we in April or March or April to all of the civic groups in town say, you know, I'm happy to come and give a talk. I gave hundreds of talks, you know, to small groups and all kinds of civic groups, you know, Kiwanis, you know, those kind of meetings and other groups, political and non-political. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is what we did in the legislature and take questions. Oh, you know, I was always happy to take questions and try to answer them. I never, to the best of my knowledge, I never dodged a question the way a lot of legislators and congressmen are doing now. You know, they never show their face. You yeah. know, in a situation where they can be questioned. But um, I didn't. You know, I never. I felt that wasn't the job. The job was to go out there and talk to people, and I did that as much as I could. And I think, I mean, that just built. You know, over the years, I just had. You know, got a lot of exposure because of the talks that I gave and the other. You know, the work like that that I did. Yeah. Um, which you know helped build a. Uh, you know, a strong base of support for me. Sure. Um, what were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first day in office? Uh, um, wow. Yeah. Here I am. You know, this is going. To, you know, this is where the. You know, this is where the statutes I read in law school and the ones I read being a lawyer. This is where they're drawn up. And, yeah. Um, you know, I had a a sense of wonder, I guess. Um, and, you know, part of the process, and of course I was a newbie and there were a lot of people there, uh, you know, it had a lot of experience. Uh, and I, you know, I made friends uh, pretty quickly with Ned Lampkin. Um, you know, we just were very simpatico on beliefs and, 
issues and uh, you know things we wanted to accomplish and um, he became and has remained a very good friend to this day mm-hmm. um, and the other people like Ray Richardson I mean there were more I mean there were a bunch of lawyers in the legislature I had you know in the beginning I you know I think I probably talked to them more than others because we were all dealing with some of the same kinds of issues for the yeah. first time uh, some of whom became lobbyists, you know, they, they were retiring about, the, leaving the legislature about the same time I was, but they went into lobbying. Guys like Nelson Becker, Tom Fricknick, people like that, who, you know, I became friends with them. They were good guys. They were smart guys, uh, you know, well thought of um, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, that did happen, in, at least did happen in the 70s, is that you had, you know, friends on both sides of the aisle um, that you could work with. And um, I talked to you earlier about Dick Mangus, who was a very, very good friend of mine, and he was a Republican. Yeah. But he, he was able, I mean, he would help the Republicans and me when, when it was a, a helpful. He would work the rural farmer type, you know, people in the legislature from the Democrat side. I mean, he made good friends with a bunch of Democrats, um, you know, from rural areas, uh, you know, over the years, and that he would could get them to support things, um, you know, that I was working on personally. And yeah. Sometimes he couldn't, you know, you, you can't sometimes talk people into things, but you do try. Sure, um, sure. So, uh, I mean, that's part of, you know, what I did the first couple of years. and Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, go ahead. Yeah, how did you... Uh, know the needs and wants of your constituents? What was the, your, your way of <clears throat> figuring that out? Well, I mean, part of it was just from the campaign trail. I mean, you know, we yeah. obviously, in that particular one, we were, in the first one, we were pushing the property tax relief, which, you know, everybody that I talked to seemed to be in favor of that. Um, but, you know, you would, you know, I, went, I mean, in the first campaign, I was going to more Republican meetings than I would, than I would say independent meetings. You know, I, yeah. I still tried to, you know, reach out to, you know, the, the Kiwanis type, you know, and get some speaking engagements like that, but it didn't get very many that, you know, that first uh, campaign. But, you know, the I go to a lot of Republican meetings and people would just say, this is what I'm, you know, this is what we're interested in. I sent out questionnaires, you know, you know, what are you, what, you know, these are the things we're looking at, you know, do you like this or don't like this? You know, that people, some people would send them back, uh, you know, with little comments. This is what I'm interested in. And of course, yeah. then once you start in the session, you know, you start getting a lot of letters from people yep. who are telling you, you know, what they're thinking. Um, and one of the things I always, I mean, two things. I, I, you know, I still believe, and I did believe at the time, that lobbyists present, you know, present a point of view but they're very valuable because they do do give you a point of view. Mm-hmm. And if they're well-organized lobbyists, then, you know, pick one, the Restaurant Association. I mean, they have people, uh, you know, restaurateurs from South Bend would contact me. You know, this is, these are the priorities for this. Yeah. And they would contact me. You know, this is what our group is interested in. Uh, and that worked for a lot of the different interest groups, you know, police and fire and whatever. You know, I didn't have a lot of 
I had some farmers. I didn't have a lot of farmland and farmers, but I still heard from the Farm Bureau and those kinds of people because there were farmers in my district. A couple of my townships were pretty sparse populated and had a lot of farms in them, but it was not a heavily farm district. But once you get down there, then you know, you start, the lobbyists start to work on it. They have all kinds of meetings and dinners and, you know, where you get to know them. And the, the, the well-organized one have people from your district or your county, you know, who contact you with these are the concerns of our particular industry. And, you know, you try to take this into, you know, I, th I always took them into account. I didn't always agree with them uh, because there were other factors. But I always took them into account. I always tried to be polite to them and find out what they were interested in. And if it was somebody I knew or had met, you know, in the South Bend area, you know, I'd be more than happy to talk to them and you know, try to steer the conversation sometimes into other issues to see what they thought about those. Yeah. But, you know, you don't, you don't lack for um, contacts from constituents, at least in those days you didn't. You got a lot of them. So you knew what people were thinking. I mean, I mean you got some kooks and nutcases. You know, <laughs> yeah. there, was, there was some Ku Klux Klaner from Terre Haute area Yikes. or something that wrote yeah. us a letter every year that was almost incomprehensible. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, and I was... Um, I mean, I was, I did work on weekends, but I would go to, if somebody invited me to meetings or somebody wanted to talk to me, you know, I'd be happy to go see him. Uh, that was, <clears throat> luckily, that was the day before cell phones, so, you know, you could, you know, you didn't get every call that came in, yeah. <laughs> you know, the way with the cell phones now, I think they must be inundated with people calling them and trying sure. to bend their ear. Uh, but there, you know, I mean, I tried to return every phone call. I tried to return, every, you know, respond to every letter. Um, that was just something I thought you should do, and I did it all the time. I was in the legislature. I, you know, even if I didn't agree with somebody, I tried to explain to them why I didn't. You know, uh, but um, you know, a lot of people just took the letters and threw them in wastebaskets. You know, but I didn't. I felt the job was to respond to those letters. Now, if they were clearly, you know, if I was getting a letter from Evansville, you know, I was that was pretty low on my list of returning sure. the things. And if I got a whole bunch of form letters, you know, because you, that would happen sometimes, you know, that some group would get all their you know, their people to send the same exact letter. So, uh, you know, you'd send a form letter back, you know, explaining why you believed that, you know, you agreed with them or didn't agree with them or whatever. Yeah. And I tried, you know, I tried to do that. Uh, but, I, you, I mean, I think you, you pretty got a pretty good idea of what people thought by what they were saying uh, to you in letters and phone calls. Um, and, you know, if they'd buttonhole you when you were back home, um, which, of course, once the session was over, then you had, you know, several months of, you know, being in the community. Right. Uh, and I, as, I, as I told you, I re tried to reach out and talk to as many groups as possible, um, you know, just because I thought that was part of the job. And, I, you, know, I th you know, it was as also building a base of people who knew me anyway. Mm -hmm. um, which is always important. Um, yeah, get your name recognition up, so to speak. Sure, that was part of the cam part of campaigning, but also part of you know finding out what people wanted. And you know, you go to a meeting and there'd be twenty people there, and inevitably, you know, you you talk about what you thought interested them, and then they'd ask questions, and then some, you know, usually before you got out of the room, two or three people would come up and you know sort of buttonhole you and. You know, give you an earful if they didn't agree with you, or you know, talk to you about some stuff. And so, you know, once I was elected, I, it was I. I thought it was 
you know, I wouldn't say I had my ear to the ground, but I'd say I got a lot of information yeah. about what people thought, what they were interested in. Um, and because of my uh, connection to Dick Mangus, who represented a totally different constituency, and his was almost all farmland, also Elkhart and St. Joe County at the time. Um, I mean, he, you know, he had a whole different group of people that were bending his ear. And yeah. so, you know, we talk about, you know, this is what somebody said to me, and, you know, this is what they're interested in. And, um, you know, I mean, he had issues that I was happy to help him on that I never would have thought of that related to farm, you know, farm country, so to speak. Right. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that's what I tried to do, and that's, you know, that worked out pretty much, I think, uh, yeah. for a lot of people and and it's you know for me in the beginning it was a learning process you know I you know I didn't know what the hell an REMC was until I was in Litchish you know these guys are getting these huge I mean I, I didn't have any REMC in my district so I, I had no idea what it was you know they're getting these stacks of postcards you know yep. about some issue you know and so I mean I learned about that you know what the, what those were I mean because you are ignorant. I mean, anybody that goes to the legislature and says they aren't ignorant of, a, of half or three quarters of what goes through there is blowing smoke. Because you are, you know. I mean, you. I mean, you learn about all of those things if you've been there a while. But when you first get there, there's a lot you just don't know, and, and so yeah. that's a process of that's a process of learning. Sure. And you got to keep your mind open for it, which I'm not sure everybody does for learning. Um, do you remember the first bill that you sponsored or authored? No, um, I don't. I, I, one of the things that I did work on is that we had um, a serious issue with annexation, the cities annexation the rural areas um, uh, into the cities, you mm. know, which the people in the rural areas that I represented were very much against. And I can't remember if that was my first year or you know a couple years into it. But that became a big controversy, and um, I had to, I mean, I did put a, a bill in that, that went, you know, that eventually went through, but I think that was later. Um, uh, one of, well, one of the first things I started doing, uh, and I think it was in 73, is I felt very strongly about the bad effects of smoking. Uh, unfortunately, both my parents smoked uh, heavily, mm -hmm. and I grew up, you know, with what they called secondhand smoke. I did, you know, yeah. uh, and I I came with a real strong prejudice against smoking, and I put in anti-smoking bills, if, if that's the right word, every yeah. year, yeah. and pushed them, and sometimes I got them through the house, but I never got anything into law, but things eventually got into law. I mean, people I served with um, eventually got the stuff uh, got a bills passed, you know. Yeah. Where there's no smoking legislation now, you know. No smoking in a lot of a lot of buildings and you know restaurants. I mean, the restaurant association, you know, was basically went up and you know they went up the tree. You know, they were so unhappy about it. I mean, I, the first one I first ones I put in were just you can't smoke in the public parts of public buildings. You know, I felt if you had to go to the clerk's office. You shouldn't have to inhale a whole bunch of smoke while you're doing business with the clerk and that kind of thing. So that's what I started with. Uh, I may have started with something stronger, but I was willing to cut it back to get that, you know, to get that through. Um, but, you know, I mean, now, I mean, it's accepted everywhere, you know. I mean, yeah. um, 
you know, rest, you can't smoke in restaurants, you know, which is one of my big uh, objections. You know, I just hated to go into a restaurant and have a table next to me, everybody was smoking away. Um, and um, so that, that was one of my personal proclivities to push. Um, and um, I can't, you know, I, I, I meant to go back and look at some of that stuff, but I just didn't do it. So I don't know sure. the specific bills. Yeah, that's but, fine. Yeah. yeah, but that was one of my, I mean, and I, I beat that, I beat that hammer uh, the whole ten, 10 years, you know, that I was there. Um, and gradually got more, you know, and more success uh, with it, but it never was, never came to fruition. And the governor, I mean, Governor Bowen being a doctor, I mean, he was supportive, but I never could get it to his desk. So, yeah. you know, I mean, he it wasn't one of the things he was going to do, put high on his list, unfortunately. I tried to get that done, but, you know, they, they he just had so many other things that you, sure. couldn't, you couldn't get that done. Um and we had some funny moments, you know, in the in the discussion, you know, uh, with it. I remember uh, Jerry Rep. I don't know, did you ever do do yeah. him? He was from up in Lake County, and he was a smoker. And um, you know, I mean, he got up and quoted something about you know the sex appeal of a, of smoking, you know. And he said, you know, you know, as for me, I just can't afford to give up any sex appeal, you know. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm against it. But, um, uh, you know, and that, you know, the only other sort of environmental bill, I mean, I consider that an environmental bill, an indoor environmental bill. Yeah. That I pushed was also kind of funny. I pushed, um, at the time, you know, we'd summered in Michigan and they had a, um, they had a bottle bill, you know, you had to pay a deposit if you got your bottles. And it was remarkable the difference between St. Joe County and, you know, the counties in Michigan on how much litter was in the road because, you know, the, you throw the bottles and the cans, you know, people just throw bottles and cans out the window. They, didn't, they weren't worth anything. Yeah. And that was before there was even much recycling. Um, and, you know, in Michigan, you know, they, all, they were worth a nickel or something. Now they're worth a dime. Um, people didn't throw them on the side of the road. You know, I mean, it was a... It really helped with the littering to have that bill, but yeah. um, anyway, I'm, I got, I mean, I ended up with, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 sponsors, you know, everybody thought it was a good idea, and then the lobbyists went to work. Oh, no. <laughs> and, I mean, it turned out, you know, the bottling plants thought this was going to, you know, uh, and then the it turned out there was probably a bottling plant in every legislative district in the state. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, you know, they, uh, they put it up for, they let it vote, go to the House floor and vote, you know. And as my friend John Colden said, you didn't even carry your sponsors, you know. I mean, they lobbied so hard that the people who had sponsored it didn't vote for it. Wow. It, didn't, it did not do well. It was a big El Stinko. But, yeah. I mean, they put it on the floor at, for, you know, uh, as a favor to me, but it was an embarrassing moment. <laughs> but, okay. You know, I mean, it's it's never come in in Indiana, and um, and now that of course the you know a lot of people go around and recycle them, so yeah. um, there's less litter. But it was you know try sort of an anti-littering thing. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now, uh, generally speaking, when you were serving, how hard was it to get a bill passed? in the General Assembly, if it was a somewhat controversial bill? 
Well, the more controversial, the more difficult it was. Sure. One of the things I first did <clears throat> in the legislature, one of the things that happened in the first campaign when I was running, we did have a few forums, Republicans and Democrats were in the same in the same room, you know, having a Republican-Democrat forum. And the uh, at that time, the all the judges in the county were elected. And so, I mean, we, we'd go to these meetings, and, of course, the judges are articulate lawyers, you know, I mean, and so they're giving these fiery partisan speeches against Nixon, you know, um, and, you know, against Republicans in general, uh, which I thought was inappropriate for judges to do. Mm -hmm. And it also turned out then to become, uh, to get elected as a judge, as a Democrat, you had to tithe to the party. Mm -hmm. So ten you had to give 10% of your salary, which was pretty modest, actually, for lawyers in the 1970s, to the party as a contribution to be slated. You know, they did slating in those days. You know, the party yeah. said, vote for these guys for judge. And I thought that was totally inappropriate. And I saw one of the judges um, just rake Dick Bodine over the coals. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for my turn, and he's up there with a divorce client or some case, you know. Mm -hmm. Just rake him over the coals. And it was all because he hadn't supported some judge mm -hmm. um, pay raise or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, that didn't really come out in the thing, but I asked Dick about it later. What the hell was all that about, you know? And he said, yeah. you, know, I, you know, I didn't support this or that or something that they wanted. Um, and I just thought all that partisan politics from judges was wholly inappropriate. Yeah. Um, and, um, so I lobbied through a bill, I think in my first year, uh, which was a bill which created a system of governor, government, governor appointments of the judges. And what you did is you, you created a panel. One of the members of the Supreme Court sat on it, and then there were other lawyer members and public members, and when there was a vacancy, then the, um, th this commission would nominate three or... F they had to nominate at least three. They could nominate as many as they wanted, and the governor would pick off of that list. Yeah. And that went... And I got that passed uh, in 70... Uh, I'm pretty sure 73. It might have been 74. I was, I'm pretty sure I got it passed in my first term. Very... Pr I mean, I ran on that as, you know, judicial reform, uh, and uh, that was ex extremely difficult because it was... In some ways, it was a little bit partisan because I was against the partisan politics that was emanating from the bench, and a lot of people felt, well, I want to be able to vote for my judges. You know, in fact, Marion County, I don't know what their system is now, but they put in a system that, I mean, maybe there were 20 at, when they first put it in, Mary, judges in Maricopa County, and each party would run 11 you know, so that at least eight or nine from each party would be elected. I mean, I don't know how they worked that out, but, yeah. you know, it, it still remained partisan elections of some one kind or another. Um, so, uh, I mean, that was controversial with Democrats, obviously, because they didn't want, you know, to give up the power of electing, sure. these, yeah. electing these guys. Yeah. Um, and a lot of Republicans were against it because they, you know, and they came from counties where you voted for the judge and they wanted to keep it that way. You know, they, they didn't say anything wrong with the system because they didn't see the bad parts of it. 
you know, the yeah. way I the way I saw it. Yeah. So I mean, I had to go around. I mean, I had to. I mean, I I did go around, you know, door to door, so to speak, or legislator to legislator, you know, trying to gen up the votes, and you know, so it was very very hard. Um, and in most of my bills, if there was any controversy or at all, even if there wasn't a controversy, um, you know, I, I, I you know I won't say it was door to door, but I would it was similar to that. I would try to go to talk to as many legislators as I could. Yeah. Uh, you could talk to your own legislators in the caucus, obviously, um, you know, in a in in a speech kind of thing. But basically, I I'd go around and count votes. I mean, I mm -hmm. that was um, that was part of what I did to get my legislation passed or legislation I'd agreed to co-sponsor for somebody in the Senate, which there was some, you know, sometimes there was that. Sure. Um, but I didn't get, I don't think I got much of that the first year or two, because I was a rookie, and the senators that were passing stuff, you know, new representatives. Um, and then I'd go work the Senate. You know, you had to go find somebody in the Senate to sponsor your bill, and then you had to, you know, you had to help them, you know, get them, get it going, you know, push, you know, put the pressure on to get it assigned a committee, you know, all the different steps you have to go through, you had to put pressure on, you know, to get the bill heard, to get the bill voted on in committee, you know. Um, so it was hard. I mean, that bill was hard. I mean, I did have to, I mean, I had to talk to everybody and, you know, get, try to get favorable editorials from the papers and things like that uh, in our county. And, I mean, it was, it was good. Be, it was, I was, it was able to, be persuasive because obviously it only applied to St. Joseph County. It didn't apply anyplace else. So, um, you know, the other counties where they wanted to keep their judges, you know, I could always assure them that, you know, I'm not coming for Adams County, you know. Right, you right. Know, it's a, you know, that's all my concern is here where we've got a, you know, we've got a bad system. And, you know, I was successful with that. And, um, you know, but that, what that is hard work. Um, sure. I mean, you know, some are, you know, some are, you know, mom and pop type stuff that, you know, you, it's easy to get the votes. I mean, they're, they're just there. Um, particularly that first year, you know, with that many Republicans, if you could stir up your own party, you could get things passed. But, I mean, I always tried to get Democrats to sponsor the bills with me if they would and to help me, you know, with their caucus. Uh, I don't know if they do that anymore, but it was almost... A regular process of getting people from the other side to uh, support your legislation. Then after you know, the first year we had that overwhelming majority. Then we went into the minority. Then when we got back in the majority. We had very very slim majorities for from seventy six seven well seventy seven after the seventy six election. You know through when I uh, left the legislature in eighty two. Very small. You know nothing like. 73, you know, very small. So you really had to work hard. When I think we had one year we had 51 or 52, and you just had to work really hard to get, you know, both parties on something that wasn't a real partisan issue. Yeah. Uh, to get in, you know, to get the votes. I mean, and that's how you were successful. Or, you know, I mean, one of the things that Dick Mangus taught me, which I hadn't ever thought of, was you got to get some of these lobbyists <laughs> to support your stuff, you know, so, um, you know, obviously the judge's bill that didn't have, you know, there was no lobbyist that was going to work on that, but other bills, there are lobbyists who are interested, or you can get them interested, you know, the, how it affects their group, um, and get their help, and Dick mm -hmm. was, Dick was kind of a master of that, you know, finding, uh, 
lobbyists who would support a bill for you know help yeah. help you help you get it passed. That was one of the things I learned from him because it never occurred to me until he started talking to me about it that that's what you needed to do. And so you know I did that. If there was a lobbyist or or two or three lobbyists where they could be helpful because they're, it helped their group. You know, you try to explain to them why it helped your particular group and get them to help you push it through. Um, yeah. And, you know, just like with legislators, you know, you, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't say you made friends, although I did make friends with two or three lobbyists pretty well, a couple from the South Bend area I became pretty good friends with. Um, but basically, you know, it was more of my interest and your interest are aligned. Um, you know, would you help me with it? Sure. Um, and sometimes they would, you know, sometimes they said, no, we got other fish to fry, and they wouldn't help, uh, you know, but they would remain neutral or something like that. They, you know, they wouldn't try to stop it. Um, and then, of course, when you had the lobbyists trying to stop it, then you had other things to overcome. You know, you, yeah. had the, you know, the people that, that they could talk to, you had to go talk to them and see if you could peel some of them away from the particular lobbyist. I had no luck with that. With my smoking bill, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds <laughs> or like with it. my environmental, or uh, you know, the bottle bill, as I called it, you know, trying to, uh, right. But you know, other things. Sometimes you could, you know, peel some people away, and, and you had to get that knowledge. You know, who, okay, who, uh, you know, who really influences which lobbyists really influence these legislators. Yeah. And I was sorry. I mean, sorry to say, and it's probably might even be worse now. There were some lobbyists that had inordinate influence mm -hmm. on. Some legislators. Um, Interesting. Yeah, you know, and you know, I, and I can't, you know, I wouldn't name names if I sure. could, but, uh, but I, you know, I can't remember. But I mean, that's something that came up a lot. Yeah. You know, where, uh, you know, and you know, people got campaign contributions, so you know, you had to be, you know, you had to listen to them. I mean, I always listened to everybody that gave me money, even if I didn't agree with them. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the hardest things that I ever did in the legislature was talk to some really good friends who'd work like hell to get me elected in 72 and in 74 uh, and explain to them why I was supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, when they were having, you know, they were having conniption fits, you know, yeah. they were very conservative, you know, they were conservative people. They were people that had been my friends, you know, but, you know, you have to do that sometimes. Yeah. Um, that was one of the hardest things I did, but I, you know, I did it. And you sometimes have to talk to your 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 friends and tell them, you know, I I'm not with you on this, you know, and yeah. try to explain to them why, and hopefully you don't lose them as voters or helpers. And I never did really, although um, they didn't like that I was, you know, sponsoring that particular bill, yeah, uh, or particular thing. But you know, I felt very strongly about it. I wasn't going to give it up, and I didn't. Yeah. Well, so yeah, the equal rights bill was obviously a big, a really big thing when you were serving. Okay. So, what were like the 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 main sort of debate being had at the time? Well, the the I mean, early on, um, the uh, in fact, I just looked at it in, in seventy two when I ran in the seventy two Republican um, state convention. You know, they you know they pretty much said they you know they approved the Republicans approved of the concept of the equal rights amendment. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't that much opposition early on until, you know, Phyllis Shafley and the right, you know, the very, very conservatives just started, you know, going cuckoo, you know, I mean, I won't say cuckoo, but objecting very heavily. Yeah. And of course, many, you know, when it came to Indiana then, we were a very important 
because we were like, um, you know, if we passed it, there'd be only, they only needed one or two more for it to become part of the Constitution. So it became a real battleground. Um, you know, in the beginning, I think, you know, early on, I think in the early 70s, most people thought, you know, it's a good idea. You know, mm -hmm. equal rights, women ought to have their, their rights. Uh, the same as you know, the same as men. Everybody didn't agree with that. There was always a misogynist running around here and there. Um, but then it, you know, then it became just a real huge political football in Indiana and in, in every place in the country because the the conservative, the real conservatives, uh, I mean, conservative conservatives, you know, yeah. they really got um, organized and you know marches and stuff. Um, you know, it was. I mean, part of it was just. Well, you know, it's 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 vague, and in some ways it was, but a lot of our Constitution is vague. You know, I mean, sure. the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, the 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 incrimination uh, amendment, you know, mm -hmm. all those are, uh, you know, intentionally vague. You know, open for some interpretation. You know, yeah. um, you know, in my lifetime, I and mean, we went with, you know, you, you know, you didn't have to incriminate yourself till you had to have a lawyer before yep. you incriminated yourself. You know, I mean, that you know, a big change. Um, but it was like, you know, well, we don't know what will happen, you know, I mean, terrible things, you know, women will be suing everybody everywhere, you know, to, for everything, which of course has happened anyway, yeah. <laughs> even though they were against the amendment. Um, and, you know, I think there was a lot of misogyny in it that wasn't necessarily expressed, you know, as directly as it is sometimes but I think there was a lot of that just anti-woman yeah. you know they you know we've got um, a lot of it was you know we have a you know we have a special patient place you know we're being taken care of you know our husbands are taking care of us that'll you know they'll stop doing that you know if we've got equal rights yeah you know you know we want to be homemakers I said nobody's telling you you can't be a homemaker but you know they were they were yeah. worried that they're what they consider to be a, a protected place was going to go away, uh -huh. um, which of course they, you know, you tried to explain to them that their place isn't so protected. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I tried to raise my girls with the idea that you have to take care of yourself. You know, you can't count on a man. I mean, luckily they both got very good men, mm -hmm. but you can't count on a man to take care of you. You know, I mean, yeah. he could die, you know, for yeah. one thing. I mean, people do die even at young ages, you know, and, you know, you could get divorced, you know, or whatever. I mean, all kinds of terrible things can happen, and a woman needs to be able to take care of herself. And that's why I wanted to get them educated, which, you know, I got, you know, I really, we really pushed education in our house. Um, and that's sort of the same thing, you know, I mean, the, the, the privileged place the women thought they had, you know, was subject to being ripped out from under them any minute because of something like, you know, a death, you know, a divorce, or, you know, you know a guy loses his job, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, they have to go to work, you know. And, and I was seeing all that kind of stuff in my law practice. You know, I did divorces, you know, we did everything in our practice. Um, you know, my, my partner, F.J., did estates, you know, and just, you know, people yeah. who had their economic pins knocked out from under them through no fault of their own. Um, but, I mean, that was an argument that people made, that women made, you know, that we are, we have all of this, you know, we're pampered and protected and, uh, you know, we're going to lose that. And, and, and I, I mean, I felt that was a, a silly argument. Right. Um, you know, and, but that was, I mean, that 
was very important to a lot of women. Um, and that, you know, there were a lot of women that were against it, a lot of women against it to this day, mm-hmm. you know, against, uh, you know, uh, law mandated equality. I mean, there's a little more, you know, anti-discrimination stuff in statutes now than there used to be, but, um, you know, they still don't have the basic constitutional protection. And I think if, I think if that had passed, we might not have quite so much controversy over abortion that we have now. I mean, I think it it would be harder to put women in jail for having a, you know, a procedure, Mm -hmm. getting reproductive health care. But, I mean, that's what's going on. I, I, I'm not following it closely, and, but I have been reading about what's going on in some states. And, that, you, know, we're, you know, we're going back to that. Uh, where yeah. In some states, you know, you'll go to jail if, you, if a woman gets an abortion. Yeah. Um, and doctors will go to jail. And um, I think a lot of that might have been prevented by the Equal Rights Amendment. But I don't know, you know, how that obviously would have been interpreted because it would have been interpreted. But I felt it was something that was important to do, and I did sponsor it. And it's one of the things I'm proudest of, being a sponsor of the last state that actually ratified yeah. ratified it. Um, and, uh, I mean, that was tough because there was a lot of public opposition to it. You know, it just grew and grew and grew. Uh, as more and more states passed it, that's when it just grew and grew and grew, the opposition to it did. Um, yeah. And it was, I mean, to me it was, it was too bad. Um, and Republicans abandoned it, even though we had, Republicans had been in favor of it. You know, they did abandon it um, in many ways. But, the, I mean, the leadership stayed with it. Um, and so we were able to get it, you know, we were able to get it through the House and the Senate. And I, I, feel, I feel really good about that, even though it's not the law of the land. It, I think it, does, it has moved some legislation to protect women, but I think this... This latest spate of anti-abortion stuff is uh, going to be very punitive towards women, and I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes me think then, uh, what was the abortion debate when you were serving in the General Assembly? Well, um, Ray Richardson played a very big part in that. and We just kind of revisited it last night. I had dinner with Ray and, and, and Ned last night. And, I mean, Ray was a chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I guess, at, mm-hmm. I think at the time. And basically he just said, you know, after the, the decision came down, he just said, nothing is going to pass that goes beyond what the Supreme Court has said, you know. And mm-hmm. our statute is going to reflect, you know, the, pro, the, the, the issues that the Supreme Court resolved, you know. Yeah. And we're not going to do anything, you know, we're not going to do anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. And he was able uh, to prevail in our caucus, in the Republican caucus, and, you know, with the Senate to pass a statute that uh, at that time just, you know, sort of mirrored the Supreme Court decision. You know, this is, mm-hmm. you know, these are, this are, these are when you have the rights and this is when it can be restricted. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the third trimester, I think, in the, yeah. in the Roe v. Wade decision. Um and, you know, everybody accepted that. I mean, Ray talked last night about it, a conference committee, and you know, in which a very conservative Republican senator served on who accepted all of that uh, thinking at the time. And it really never came back after that, you know, you know, when it was passed. The Roe v. Wade came down in 73, and by the end of that session, you know, I think we'd passed that statute that mirrored the thing, and it never changed. It never came up again. 
you know, yeah. I mean, this was a right that, that women have. Um, and, uh, you know, only later then did the state start to, you know, well, you got to have, you know, permission of your husband, you've got to have, uh, you know, you got to have waiting periods, all this other stuff that came up. And, um, and I think they said last night, Ned said um, that like there are 55 restrictions in the Indiana law. I mean, before yeah. this whole, you know, before they threw Roe v. Wade out at the, at the Supreme Court level. Um, you know, and, and all kinds of states mirror that. You know, I lived in Arizona, they did the same thing. You know, and I never did a count, but they were always, you know, coming up every year, coming up with a new restriction to make it harder and harder for women to exercise their constitutional right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it was, you know, it was unfortunate, but that's what's, you know, that's what happened in many states, some of the same states now that are banning it, you know, completely. Yeah. You know, it, uh, um, and uh, I think it's it's kind of unfortunate. I think we're going to have a real litigation and health crisis. Uh, I don't know if it will be a crisis, but health yeah. issues yeah. in this country uh, for years as a result of that and what's going on in state legislatures now. Yeah, it sounds like a, a recipe for never-ending lawsuits. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's going to employ a lot of lawyers yeah, uh, over the right. years. There isn't any question about that. Yeah. Um, and it's going to scare a lot of people. It's going to hurt a lot of people. Um, yeah. And it's, it's going to be a very difficult thing to go through. Um, I mean, to me, there are a few issues, and that would be one of them, that we really should have a national policy. Um, you know, another one is same-sex marriage, you know, which mm-hmm. I think is going to be challenged here again pretty yeah. soon by somebody. At least that's what uh, Justice Thomas said. Yeah. I mean, you need a national... Um, policy on that, that kind of an issue. Um, to me, anyway, you need to have mm-hmm. a national policy, and we have one now, uh, pretty much. But you know, it's at the you know the Supreme Court could say you know like with this one, it's up to the states. You know, some states can accept same-sex marriage, and some states don't have to. Yeah. Um, and I think that's you know I think those things are so important to so many people. Uh, you know who have you know, have same-sex partners mm-hmm. that, um, you know, and have children, uh, you know, it's just really, uh, you know, if that gets changed, I mean, I think that would be even as an unfortunate, uh, as unfortunate as what's happened here mm-hmm. uh, with abortion. Um, but you need national policies on that. Um, yeah. I mean, Clarence Thomas even intimated that, we, you know, that, you uh, the decision that I think was Griswold versus Connecticut, which I studied in law school, that said you have a right to uh, birth control yeah. is at risk. Now, I, I don't know if that'll happen, but I mean, who knows? I mean, the, the, the legislature that will, you know, have no exceptions, you know, for any, you know, for some woman who gets raped or, mm-hmm. you know, her, whose uncle impregnates her or something, incest, uh, I mean, why wouldn't they? say, you know, you can't take birth control in our state, I mean, yeah. which is what the law was in Connecticut until that lawsuit, which I, you know, I, you know to me that's ridiculous. But right. uh, they, somebody may do it. I mean, I, I think that would be much harder <laughs> for a state to do than, than some of the stuff they're doing now. But, um, you know, you need to have national policies on some of this stuff. And, yeah. you know, a hodgepodge of states, I mean, it, it's going to be... It's going to be a mess in the abortion area to have such a hodgepodge 
of laws around the country. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, un it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Um, you know, the states are trying to uh, say, you know, if you're a citizen of our state and you go to a state and have an abortion, we can still charge you with, criminally with doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's totally unconstitutional, but st some states are going to do it. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because you served in, you know, you know I guess the 70s and 80s. Um, yeah. You know, when you compare the time that you were in politics to politics today, like, what's that like for you? Does it seem like totally different worlds, or does it seem like, you know, these recurring issues that never fully went away just popping up? Yeah. Well, um, it's very disquieting to see what's happening now um, with a lot of the social issues, I mean, if you want to call them that, yeah. um, in particular. But the... When you know when I served, I, there was a lot of uh, friendship, if that you know, or friendly relations between the two parties. Yeah. You know we you know the, you know when I served, it seemed like I guess the way to put it, it seemed like there were eight or ten issues that were partisan issues, uh, and you know we had the caucus on them, and we caucused on more than that, but there were eight or ten issues. You know, budget being the main one, tax policy, election laws those things that were very clearly basically partisan issues. And we had to, you know, the legis we had to drum our caucus into them. And the Democrats, the same way when they were in charge. They had, there was eight or 10 or 12 issues that you had to, you know, every year, you know, the governor had a list. I mean, Doc Bowen did, yep. you know, Bob Orr did when I was there, you know, and those were issues that you had to do your best to get the Republicans to support because that, that's what the governor wanted. Didn't always happen, but you, you know, those were partisan partisan issues. Yeah. Everything else was more rural, you know, versus cities, you know, perspectives, you know, different kinds of perspectives that people had labor against management, that kind of stuff that went across, you know, different lines and weren't wholly partisan. And everything wasn't wholly partisan. Now it appears to me uh, like everything is partisan, you know, I mean, I mean, every decision, you know, to adjourn is a partisan decision, yeah. you know, I mean, it just seems that it's, it's gone crazy with regard to making things partisan. I mean, the, I mean, the Republicans in the Senate just voted against veterans in this country who got hurt in Iraq with some kind of you know, burn pile. I never even yeah. heard of that being a problem, but they decided, you know, that was a step too far, and then, you know, the, the Republicans in the Senate all voted against it. I mean, or, and I think they voted, but at least they, yeah. they made it lose. They didn't, I won't say they all voted against it, because I didn't follow it that closely. But they've made, I mean, everything has become partisan and bitter, and I mean, my friend Dick Mangus was telling me that in the mid or late 80s, about how partisan it was becoming and how, you know, uncomfortable it was becoming because there was this partnership and anger and um, lack of uh, comity between the parties that didn't, didn't exist when I was there, didn't exist when Ned was there, didn't exist, you know, when Dick and I were serving, to, Dick Mangus and I were serving at the same time. And I think that's very unfortunate that that's happened because you have to work together. I mean, there are different perspectives, and nobody's got the right answer. Mm -hmm. You know, they just really don't have the, nobody has the right answer. 
and to make it, you know, I mean, to make it a to me to make it a Republican issue that uh, transgenders can't play on high school sports, mm-hmm. you know, which is or you know to have a state law that says which they were trying to do in Arizona last year, you know, you can't you know have any medical procedures relating to transgender uh, until you're 18 or something, you know, I mean, um, and, uh, you know, all those kinds of decisions become just wholly, they become wholly partisan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's unfortunate because they should not be partisan issues. You know, they need to look at how these things, all these kinds of things affect people. But now, I mean, uh, we've just, you know, we just wake up every day with some issue that is just, you know, this is a Republican issue and therefore we're all for it and the Democrats are all against it. No, this is a Democrat issue and Democrats are all for it and the Republicans are all against it. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it makes for terrible government. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what we've had in state and federal legislatures. We have bad government because of the lack of cooperation that ought to exist. You know, they keep talking, you know, the U.S. Senate, you know, the greatest deliberative body in the world. They don't deliberate anymore. Yeah. You know, they don't do it. You know, you watch the Senate floor, somebody gets up and speaks, there's nobody there listening to them. You know, it's all just, you know, it's all just politics. I'm sure there's more deliberations and committees and, you know, behind closed doors and all that that shows publicly. But publicly, you know, the face of politics is just this hard partisan partisan divide that seems right now unbreachable. Yeah. Um, and it's really a shame. Um, I mean, I think certain medias have made that uh, even more hard to deal with. Um, and and that, that's unfortunate. But you have to have the perspective of people who are elected, you know, around the country for Congress, around the state. Yeah. You know, you bring those perspectives to the legislature. And you have to, you know, they're all different, you know, they aren't all the same. And you have to meld those together to do right by the whole, all the people in the state. Um, That's one of the things I said in my farewell address when I left and and I I wasn't really retiring because I was a young man still. But, you know, the legislature has to talk to people who aren't represented by big lobbying groups. You have to understand their perspective, and you have to bring that to the legislature. I mean, the lobbyists bring the perspective of their lobbying groups. You know, the Restaurant Association, I don't mean to pick on them, the teachers, I mean, farm bureaus, all of those lobbyists, successful lobbyists, which there are plenty, um, several of whom I served with who were very successful in the 80s and 90s, you know, as I said, they have their place, but but they have their voice. But they, you don't have the voice of the other, you know, the other side of the equation if you don't listen to people who are not represented, you know, by lobbying groups. And if you only listen to the leaders of, you know, the pretended leaders of your party or the elected leaders of your party, presidents, senators, you know, speakers, you know, presidents of senates, all of those kinds of people. If you only listen to that small perspective of leadership, um, you're not serving all the people. You're serving a very narrow part of the people. And it's wrong. In my view, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was never like that. At least I never felt it was like that, except on a small range of issues that were, you know, partisan. Yeah. Um, but now, I mean, just everything is uh, seemingly to, you know, I'm not close to it anymore. I did do some lobbying in Arizona, 
um, for Planned Parenthood, um, you know, and so I, you know, I saw that was happening in there. Same thing was happening in the Arizona legislature. It had happened. To, yeah. you know, a lack of uh, friendship and, you know, uh, just being c- kind and to each other is, you know, was disappearing in Arizona. And, and Dick Mangus was telling me at the same time, you know, in the 90s, it was disappearing in Indiana. Uh, and he really decried that. I'm really sorry you didn't get a thing with him because yeah, he, yeah. he had a really different perspective. But I mean, I mean, I would, you know, uh, he, I'd see him every summer, almost every summer, and you know, we'd talk about that, and he'd talk about what was going on and how, you know, he didn't like it as much anymore because it wasn't as friendly and it wasn't as, you know, working together trying to solve problems instead of trying not to solve problems. You know, the. I mean, I, I don't know how anybody feel. I mean, people feel differently about global warming, but global warming has been a partisan issue for 20 yep. years, yep. you know. And um, like Ray Richardson last night said, you know, it's over. You know, we, we've, we've lost to mm-hmm. global warming. Um, and, you know, maybe we have. I, I don't know. I mean, some people right. still think there's things we can do, but we have lost. And, I mean, in the, I mean, the last vote in Congress, I mean, they finally got... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Mitchell or whatever is the the senator from West Virginia to oh, agree Mitchell, with, yeah. yeah, to agree with, you know, the 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 Democrats and putting forth something with yeah. regard to global warming. But I mean, they're doing it, you know, with a legislative sleight of hand, and you know, none of you know, very few Republicans or maybe no Republicans will support, you know, taking any steps at all to deal with that issue. And it's, to me, it's unfortunate. I mean, we're seeing it every day. You know, the storms, the storms are worse and harder. You know, my daughter lives in the Northwest. You know, they've had unprecedented, over 100 degree temperatures in Oregon and yeah. Washington. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, get real here. I mean, yeah. uh, the people in the Keys down in Florida are talking about, you know, when they're, you know, when their land's gone. Um, I mean, it's a shame. Uh, but, you know, the solution is not to build a 50-foot fence, you yeah. know, around them. It just it's just isn't going to yeah. work. I mean, it's, it's just sad that they they can't recognize it as a problem, you know, because of the partisan divide, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the, it's a lobbyist divide, too. You know, it's the coal producers and the, you know, the guys pumping oil out of the ground who want to keep pumping carbon, pumping carbon, pumping carbon. You know, there's a big economic interest behind it. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's just a shame, you know, and it's, you know, another one is like the NRA, you know, everything, you know, dealing with trying to deal with gun violence and, uh, you know, the, the, the massacre of so many people with these automatic weapons, you know, by, I don't know, I, I don't know if they're crazy, but they're certainly mm-hmm. determined to act crazy, um, you know, and there's, you can't do anything about that, you know, yeah. it'd be a very, you know, very tiny little steps this year, but uh, nothing that's going to make a big difference in my view. And these shouldn't be such highly partisan issues. But, you know, the strength of lobbyists and, you know, the media and, and, you know, just what's happened in the legislature to make everybody so angry with the other party and looking looking at them as villains and idiots and, you know, we don't have to pay attention to them. It's just wrong. I mean, you need to pay attention in the Senate from the senators from the small states as well as the guys from New York and California, you know. I mean, you need to pay attention to it 
but people have to be willing to come, you know, to first recognize there's a problem. And that's, that's the thing that bothers me the most about current, pro- current politics yeah. is that one party or the other doesn't agree that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a problem. I mean, that's been, that's been kind of the mantra of the Republicans for a long time uh, with, you know, global warming. You know, it's just not a problem. The carbon in the air isn't a problem. Uh, you know, we don't want to sacrifice, you know, whatever we're supposed to sacrifice. You know, they make fun of um, the presidents who've gone, you know, tried to do some Obama, you know, who signed the Paris mm-hmm. Accord. You know, yep. Trump gets in and, want, you know, cancels, you know, our participation. You know, that, that shouldn't be partisan. I mean, people should recognize, even if they're Republicans, that there is a problem here and we need to deal with it. But, you know, I mean, that, I mean that, that's the worst thing is when the partisan divide keeps you from recognizing there's a problem you have to deal with. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's happened, unfortunately, you know, with the carbon going into the air. You know, the yeah. clean air is not there. You know, it really isn't. Um, and, you know, I mean, we lived in Arizona for a long time. It's a valley. You get this inversion in the, you know, you get this inversion, which, you know, forces the pollution down into the valley. Um, you know, you, they go on TV, you know, if you've got trouble, you know, if you've got a little trouble breathing, stay inside today in air conditioning, you know, uh, don't go outside and breathe the air. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. and, um, uh, you know, you just, you know, you, you look at that and you say, you know, why can't both parties realize that that's a problem and try to deal with it? But they don't, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. And it's, it's a shame because that's, I mean, they're supposed to be representing people and people are suffering in a lot of areas that nobody is recognizing that that's really a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'll get off my high horse now. No, go on, no. Go on to something else. But it's that, I mean, that, that bothers me. Yeah. Um, it's, it seems like, Politics today really just isn't recognizable from your experience. No, it is not. It is not. And the Republican Party is not recognizable yeah. from my experience. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, I went through the 72 thing. I mean, there, you know, they were talking about civil rights and all kinds of things in there that the Republicans yeah. were in favor of. That was the party that I, um, I joined. That's the party, yeah. I was, I, the party I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, it's it's not the same party. I mean, it's it's left me. Um, yeah. You know, it's left Ned. It's left Ray. I mean, I'm still a registered Republican. Um, mm-hmm. But the literature I got there's a local there's a primary tomorrow today. Yeah. In, in Michigan, I mean, I voted by uh, I voted by absentee or you know mm-hmm. Dropbox, um, which I hope continues to be legal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, I mean every you know. Everybody that sent me literature, and they sent these huge, big postcards, who were running for the legislature, running for Congress, uh, running for governor. Well, I didn't get much from the governor candidates. They just didn't have enough money to do it. You know, it was all, you know, I'm more conservative than my opponent. You know, yeah. Trump supports me. He doesn't support the other guy. Trump endorsed me. Yeah. You know, I love Trump. You know, I mean, but they're all, you know, I mean, they're all just, uh, you know, they support the Second Amendment, but they don't talk about, you know, I mean, you've got the right to carry a gun, but don't you have some responsibility? Can't you talk about the responsibility that gun owners have, you know, to keep these terrible weapons, you know, out of the hands of young men who, um, a lot of them are young men who want to go into schools or malls or wherever, public places, and shoot people, 
you know, the parade in Chicago, the, you know, that kid that went into the mall the other day that got shot, you know, I mean, these are, you know, these are issues that, of responsibility, you know, but the, you know, the NRA people don't, aren't interested in accepting responsibility on behalf of all these people that are carrying all these terrible weapons. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, to me, it's sad. Uh, yeah. It, and it's sad, and it's sad that people could get elected, just, you know, just saying those things, you know, saying, you know, I'm in favor of the Second Amendment. I mean, one of the guys, you know, he sent out a, um, pictures of him holding a gun, you know, I mean, you see it all the time. Uh, you know, guy, you know, people going out and shooting in the woods, you know, and putting a video on for their campaign. Um, but they don't, never talk about the responsibility that people have. Um, you know, my brother was a policeman, mm -hmm. and he locked it, you know, he came home every night and locked his pistol up in a, you know, in a lockbox that nobody could get in but himself. Yeah. You know, so his kids couldn't get at it and shoot each other. Uh, you know, that's, that's the responsible gun ownership. Yeah. And that should be, you know, that should be brought out. I mean, that should be enforced by law if necessary, you know. And, uh, you go to jail if you don't lock your weapons up, you know. If you give your 15-year-old an AK-47 and he goes and shoots 10 people, you've got some responsibility for that, too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can't, even, you can't talk about that even, let alone do it in a right. legislative context. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's just wrong, and it, it's, it's going to cause, and it's causing the, prop, the country a lot of problems, and it's going to get worse if it doesn't, yeah. if we don't deal with the, don't all recognize this as a problem. You know? yeah. I mean, why Republicans don't recognize that it's a problem you know, is beyond me, but they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, they certainly can't talk about a solution yeah. for, you know, for the gun control or gun safety is a better way to put it, you know, from people's sure. perspective. Um, you know, I just, you know, I, I despair and, yeah. you know, that's, you know, I can't do anything about it anymore. I don't have any political power. Yeah, except, the world except has my changed. vote or the people I, yeah. you know, I mean, I, uh, I did help in Michigan pass the petition to have a nonpartisan uh, reapportionment. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting is, this is the first election. The re, that new reapportionment is going to work. Yeah. In Michigan, so I'll see how it, if it works out to be a, a better election, better districts than what they've had before. But I mean, who knows? Yeah. But uh, yeah, at least it, it's not a partisan reapportionment anymore. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. Um, what was the platform of the Republican Party when you served? For example, uh, and I'll just read a couple of them. Um, we support the community school concept with local community responsibility and control. Um, and I still believe that that's a good, that's a good thing, and yet we are seeing um, a, a growing trend of state legislators and governors you know, wanting to act as the school board with regard to the curriculum that is taught in schools. Um, and I think, you know, I think the more legislatures stick their nose into the curriculum, the more difficult it's going to be for public education to thrive. Uh, I, you know, I think they ought to deal with the local, you know, deal with local control more than that is, you know, is now happening. Um, here's another one, human relations. The Republican Party is open to all groups in full participation. 
Republican Party will continue to be the party dedicated to the rights of the individual. The struggle of minority groups to attain these rights has moved into the area of organizing for the reassertion of their individual rights. We encourage their participation in the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party has gotten very much away from uh, that sort of concept. Um, here, at 72, we support the concept of the Equal Rights Amendment. Again, um, the Republican Party eventually became very much opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment. In the environment, the Republican Party of Indiana reaffirms its commitment to assure protection of the environment for all of its citizens and for future generations. Uh, again, I think the Republican Party is not dedicated to the improvement of the environment the way they, it ought to be these days. Um, and I think environmental issues are um, going to become very uh, pro more prominent and it's sooner that the Republicans begin to work with the Democrats to try to solve some of these environmental issues, the better off the country is going to be. Um, and then their final, uh, the, one of the final paragraphs. We solemnly, solemnly declare that the Republican Party does not now and will not hereafter advocate the overthrow by force or violence of any local, state, or national government, nor does it advocate or conduct any program of sedition or treason against any such government. Um, I think what happened on January 6th is sedition, if not treason. It certainly was an effort to overthrow um, you know, the, the actions of the government to uh, affirm an, the election of a new president. Um, and the, it's been very unfortunate and uh, unhappy for me to see the number of uh, Republicans of prominence or alleged prominence uh, who have supported uh, President Trump and what he stirred up on January 6th of uh, 2021, I guess it was, and continue to support him and act like um, if he gets back in power, that's how they're going to act. Uh, and I think that is not the Republican Party that I ever belonged to. Uh, I belong to the one that just wouldn't support anything like that. Um, and I think the changes, you know, in 40 years in the Republican Party are in many ways very unfortunate. And I was certainly a, partis a partisan Republican and a proud Republican for 10 years in the legislature. And I'm not proud of the party these days. Yeah. At all. And so that was the platform for, of the Indiana Republican Party in 1972? 1974. Yeah, 1972, right. Okay. The year that I ran the first time. And it was the Republican Party um, that acted in like that for most of my, you know, probably for all of my 10 years that I served in the legislature. Mm -hmm. We cared about those things although they didn't do as much on the environment as I would like to have seen done, but it wasn't as urgent uh, as it is now. Uh, it, it's more urgent now. Uh, and I would just say they should revert to some of those principles um, and go forward. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they write 
in 19, in 2022, and yeah. well, or they won't probably won't write one in 2022, in 2024, yeah. uh, for what they what they stand for, because um, it's getting very difficult to understand what they really stand for, other than we want to be in power and we don't like the other guys. Um, mm-hmm. That's the impression they give the public, and that's certainly the impression they've given me. It's unfortunate. Uh, well, let's see. Thinking now of just some big picture reflective questions. Um, so why did you decide to leave the General Assembly? Um, well, part of it was political and part of it was personal. Okay. Um, I've, uh, I, I haven't talked about this before, but in 1976, I was fortunate enough to be elected to the leadership of the Republican Party in the, of the Republican in the House of Representatives. I was elected as the majority caucus chairman, the Republicans caucus chairman, so I participated in the leadership uh, in, from 76 to 80. In 80, and Ned Lampkin had been the, during that period of time, he had been the House Majority Leader, okay. the number two person in the House. And our friendship and political um, fortunes were, um, you know, entwined, entwined. I wanted to help him. He, he was going to run for speaker in 19, after the 1980 election and did run. And was unsuccessful, and I was not successful in being elected as caucus chairman again. So we both lost. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think Ned sooner than I was of the opinion that, you know, he, he should quit. His legislative career was over. I was still pretty young, so um, I had to think about it longer. But I do think, I mean, that was the Reagan revolution, revolution right. so to speak, in 1980 and that 1980 election. Uh, and it was a conservative, you know, it was a, a conservative victory. I mean, mm-hmm. more, not as conservative as what we have now. I mean, people who call themselves conservatives. Right. But certainly, um, you know, he brought in people into the legislature, uh, you know, who were more conservative than the, those who had served there. And the, the legislature and then the leadership take, took a more conservative viewpoint. And I viewed that as kind of a, a watershed election in that regard for the conservatives um, to, you know, have more power. And, I, you know, I didn't see a pathway for me in the state legislature, you know, to you know, regain, regain leadership or be, you know, be in leadership. Yeah. And after you've been there and you've been involved in making all the decisions, or not making, participating in the making of decisions, you know, you, you didn't really make them, but you, know, you certainly had an influence on all the decisions on important policies that were made. Um, and we had very tight majorities during the, the four years that I was caucus chairman. So it was really hard work to convince, you know, our party, you know, people what to do sometimes. But we did, you know, try to do that. And those are the last four years of Governor Bowen, which had been very success, you know, been very successful in many ways. And, you know, we were able to help him achieve his agenda. And I think all that just kind of, you know, in my view, went away with that 1980 election. Um, and Governor Orr, who was his lieutenant governor, became governor. Um, but, you know, I think there just became a more conservative bent. And I think, you know, I predicted or felt that it was going to continue to get more and more conservative 
which it has, you know, since then. Yeah. I didn't see a future. I mean, I, I was a moderate, you know, I mean, Ned and I, modern Ray, were moderates, and we, we, there were a lot of us that were, you know, we probably we had a majority of people who um, were more moderate in our political views than mm-hmm. the people who then took over in 1980. Um, and uh, I didn't see it turning in any, you know, any particular time in the near future. And at the same time, my wife's family had all moved to Arizona, and she wanted, she'd been near my family ever since we were married, you know, and she wanted to move to Arizona. She thought she could have some opportunities out there with her family, and certainly be close to them. Um, And, you know, I mean, we agreed that, I mean, we agreed that we would come back in the summers, to Michigan, you know, to be around my family, but she wanted she wanted to do that, and I, you know, I was persuaded by sort of what I felt was the the end of my political career, or certainly a, a hiatus in whatever my political career would be. I mean, there was a Republican congressman at that time in our area. You know, there was no pathway there, um, so uh, I just felt that you know it was a good time for me to. Uh, and my dad was my dad was sick, and he's yeah. had given up practicing law by then. He'd retired, uh, and he died soon after we moved to Arizona. And he, um, so, you know, I was no longer practicing with him. And although I dearly loved F.J., he was also of an age where he was going to not, you know, practice forever. Um, I didn't think he would practice actually as long as he ended up practicing. And so I was going to have to make a change. You know, uh, with regard to my personal uh, work as as a as a lawyer, and um, so you know, I, I felt I could work in Arizona. You know, as a lawyer, you mm-hmm. know, maybe not. I wouldn't certainly have the same kind of wonderful, you know, homespun practice I had here. Yeah. But I could do that, and my wife would have opportunities, and we would be around her family, which she really wanted to do. You know, after years of being uh, kind of isolated, not isolated, but certainly not with them as much time as she would like. And she, you know, she had three brothers, she had three siblings in Arizona, her parents, you know, a bunch of nephews and nieces. Um, And so, you know, that that was a pull for us. And when I, you know, the other thing was I would go to the legislature the last two or three years, and in January or February, she take the girls and go to Arizona where it was 80 degrees and it was 10 degrees here. (laughs) And that was, um, you know, that was something that pulled me a little bit towards Arizona. I do like sunshine and warm weather and uh, Arizona certainly had it. So it was partially personal, partially the thinking it was kind of uh, the end of, you know, my political career. and so you know we made you know we made that decision. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so summarizing your time as a state legislator, what what would you say about your experience? Uh, it was a wonderful experience. I yeah. I you know there's a lot of tension. I loved you know I I loved every minute of it. I loved the politics of it. Um, you know I. You know, you get tired campaigning, but I really enjoyed the campaigning. I enjoyed meeting people, um, you know, giving speeches, you know, acting like I knew what I was talking about and people <laughs> thinking I knew what I was talking about. Um, 
you know, I, I enjoy, I really enjoyed it. I thought I played a good role in the legislature the 10 years I was there, a positive role um, in helping to get through some programs that the, uh, the, you know, the party wanted, the governor wanted, and that I wanted personally. Um, and uh, so, you know, I felt very, uh, I felt, I felt like I, the 10 years was a nice long time to be in the legislature. I didn't feel like um, I should serve 40 or 50 years like a lot of people did, even though some of them were my friends, like Dick Mangus served a long time. Ray Richardson served 26 years. I hadn't realized how long he'd served. Um, I just didn't see, you know, doing that. I didn't, and I think it's good to have turnover, even though I think the turnover that's happened, you know, that's happened has been unfortunate in the, uh, the, the seer, severe conservative bent, although some of the things I think they're doing uh, in legislatures around the country and in Indiana uh, are not really conservative, but they think they are. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, uh, you know, I feel very, I feel very good about it. And um, I, you know, I did enjoy it. And I, I, I thought I made a uh, impact in, uh, you know, I guess more as an attorney and committee work. I mean, a lot of the things that you don't see, uh, you know, behind the scenes are what the committees do and how they work and rewrite legislation um, and modify it. Uh, and I mean, I did, I thought I worked hard at that and I like to do, you know, I like that. I like doing that kind of work, um, you know, helping craft and write the legislation. Although, you know, there was obviously a lot of authors uh, with the legislative council and stuff, but I, I played a role in that and I like that. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed that. Um, uh, so I, you know, I feel very good about it. I feel it was a good 10 years. I felt it was a good 10 years uh, for the Republican Party, for the uh, state of Indiana. And um, so I have, I have, and I have warm and comfortable friendships, uh, you know, that I've maintained over the years. That's always, you know, sometimes in the long run, that's the most important thing, to have good friends from things that you've done. You know, as I told you earlier, I've got friends from college, I've got friends from law school, I've got friends from, you know, being in high school and grade school. I mean, I've got two grade school friends. That wow. I, I, I talked, well, they, we also went to the same high school together. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I found a picture the other day of my grade school, third grade class, and, you know, there's this young woman there, you know, three, you know, same age as me, you know, we're still friends after mm -hmm. all these years. I visited her a couple of years ago, she lives in Virginia now. Uh, friends with her younger sister who I didn't know who lives in the South Bend area. We see her in the summer. Yeah. So, I mean, making the friendships, you know, that I've kept and uh, of good people like Ned Lampkin, Ray Richardson, and others uh, has been uh, important. Sure. Uh, in, in enjoying my life and bringing lots of um, uh, important things to my life. Uh, so I feel good about that. Um, and... Uh, you know, I wish I had some more influence than I do now today, but it's, mm. you know, I, I voluntarily gave it up and never tried to reclaim it anyplace else. So right. I just have to be frustrated in that uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what lessons did you learn from your experiences? Uh, well, I think one of the lessons was that I, um, you have to look, listen to other people's perspective. Uh, but you still have the right to reject it if you yeah. don't, if you don't understand their perspective. Um, 
that uh, doing working in the legislature has to be a hard job. Um, and I mean, I observed in my time that there were a lot of people who did not work hard at it. You know, they just, you know, they just were sort of there, you know, I wouldn't call them furniture, but they, you know, they didn't work hard at the committee work. They didn't work hard at, you know, pushing and sponsoring bills. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work was done, you know, basically, I think, a lot of the hard work is done by, you know, 20 or 30 maybe people in the legislature. Um, and I think more people need to, you know, I think people need to work harder. And I think that's the lesson I learned. You have to look work hard. You have to look at the details of things. I mean, that really played over into my legal career, you know, following through on knowing all the details, you know, not leaving a stone unturned, really understanding everything. Mm -hmm. uh, about a piece of legislation and then about a lawsuit. I did commercial litigation most of the time in Arizona. I, and I did a lot of litigation up in South Bend, but we did other stuff too. Um, but yeah, to be careful about the details because there's, you know, and, and the unforeseen consequences of things. I mean, you, you try in forming legislation to see what the consequences are going to be down the line. Yeah. And I, I think... There's not as much attention paid to that sometimes, uh, you know, having had to litigate what some statutes mean in both Indiana and Arizona, uh, I think sometimes people don't understand the consequences. They don't foresee the, you know, the bad that's going to come from what they think is good. And, you know, legislators have to really work at understanding that and trying to diminish the harm that some piece of legislation is going to do. Um, and I think that's a lesson I really learned, which, you know, to be able to try to foresee, you know, what the consequences of these actions will be. You know, and I, that translates to your personal life, too. You know, what, yeah. what are the consequences of the decisions you're making, the work you're doing, you know, how you're treating your family and your friends? You know, what are the consequences of that? Yeah. Uh, so that, and that's a lesson because, uh, I mean, almost every, you know, every important piece of legislation that's passed has unforeseen consequences, you know, and people just, they don't, you know, they don't see that, you don't see it coming. You try to cut that out, but you, you know, you can see that every day, you know, I, they try to do X and it does Y, mm -hmm. um, or it has a consequence nobody thought of, and now they wish it didn't happen, but, uh, you know, those, and that's, those are important lessons for life, you know, what are the consequences? What are the foreseeable consequences of action you take? And you have to translate all, that also to your personal life. Uh, yeah, I think for most people, I mean, a lot of people, I think, get in trouble in business, in their personal relations, with their family relations, by not understanding the foreseeable, not understanding what the consequences of saying this to your children, you know, yeah. saying this to your wife, saying this to your friends are going to have. You know, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but that's a lesson you have to learn. And so some people, you can, I mean, just tell from the number of divorces we have in this country mm -hmm. and other problems, other social problems like that, people don't understand the consequences of a bunch of that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Uh, my advice would be to uh, carry on with the theme, try to understand the consequences and how the legislation affects people. Um, 
And, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, very simple. I mean, I think right now what they're going through with abortion, um, I mean, there's going to be serious consequences to people, some very foreseeable at this point, you know, some obviously not. And they, you know, they need to do something, that, you know, to mitigate some of the harm that I think may come from that legislation. They, you know, they need to mitigate, but you always need to do that. I mean, whatever subject you're looking at, criminal statutes, criminal penalties for statutes, you know, how severe are they? Are they too severe? You know, are we going to have more severe penalties, put people in jail for longer for things that they maybe shouldn't be put in jail? You know, like the possession of marijuana. You know, I mean, a lot of states have gone back and, you know, basically pardoned people mm -hmm. who were in jail for possession of marijuana when the state has, um, a, you know, made marijuana accessible. Michigan and Arizona, both the states that I spend most of my time in, both of them have, you know, recreational marijuana, you know, sales and everything. Um, and I, you know, I think other states, you know, like Indiana could profit at least from the idea of, Letting some of these people, you know, nonviolent offenders, you know, letting them out of jail, mm -hmm. uh, which are the states that have passed it. I mean, Indiana hasn't passed. I don't think they've even passed medical marijuana. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, to me, the jury is out a little bit about how uh, it helps people, but it does help people with pain, I guess. I mean, I, um, even though I live in two states, you know, I'm not, I've never used it, don't tend to use it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I suppose if I got in terrible pain, I might try it because people who get in terrible pain sure. do try it and claim that they get some relief. Uh, but I have a good friend um, who has tried it to relieve his arthritis pain, and he basically has given up, you know, it's not helping. So, I mean, I don't know. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's an issue to talk about in terms of we have to study that. Somebody's got to study that to see what the long-term uh, medical effects of use are. I mean, we know what the long-term medical effects of smoking cigarettes is. I cannot believe that there aren't serious long-term effects to your health by long-term use of smoking marijuana. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, there, as far as I know, there are very few competent studies um, of what the long-term effects are, you know, with regard to lung health, heart health, you know, other kinds of things. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I would advise legislators to look at that. I mean, I don't, I don't approve necessarily that it passed, but I think it's probably a good thing um, to eliminate all, you know, a whole lot of criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and we've, uh, they need to look, I think, at um, the effects of these uh, private prisons yep. and how much, you know, how they affect long-term incarceration or additional incarceration because they support, you know, they make a profit from it. Um, you know, we've got a huge, you know, we've got a huge incarceration in this country. And, um, you know, we need to take a look at that, what it costs, you know, what it costs in terms of human lives. Um, and uh, I think that's, you know, and you have to look at that in you know, all kinds of policies, but those are, that's one that comes to my mind because I'm, I really worry about the private prison setups that we have yeah. in this country. Uh, and I don't know if they have them in Arizona, or in, in, in Indiana, but they do have them in Arizona and other states. Um, and I know they unfortunately do lobby for um, 
you know, a, you know, more severe criminal penalties and you know, more prisons, etc. Um, and I think uh, I think they need to take a hard you need to take a hard look at gambling. Um, I mean, gambling is great revenue and all these lotteries and you know, and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of gambling has some very serious effects mm-hmm. on a lot of people who get gambling addictions. Um, and you know, you that's just it's so easily foreseeable that that's what's going to happen yeah. when you put in casinos and stuff that you're going to get that kind of stuff. And you have to have uh, programs to deal with that. Um, and because I mean, I think you know, drug use and gambling are two things that are very. Uh, destructive of society, of families, mm-hmm. um, and those are things that need to, you know, that need to be looked at and need to have better programs. Um, you know, and like, you know, we've been talking, or I've been talking about abortion a lot today. Uh, you need to look at, you know, taking care of these children that are going to be born that are not wanted. I mean, there's going to be more of those because yep. people who seek abortions don't want the don't want a child for a lot of reasons and maybe their own health or whatever, but they're going to have them. I guess the the uh, literature shows or the investigations show that the people who seek abortions and then don't do it, they keep you know are prevented from doing it by state government policies. That, you know they don't tend to put the children up for adoption so much as they tend to keep them, and. They need help, um, you know, uh, with daycare, with jobs, you know, all kinds of things to give the kids, a, the children a chance, you know, to thrive in our society. Um, and we need to have, I think, more emphasis on that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, how do we give these children a good education, you know, good health care, you know, give them opportunities. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's something that legislatures have been neglectful of over the years, you know, to provide those kind of programs. And it's going to be more important now um, as, you know, as the abortions are being, you know, prevented in, yeah. greater, in greater numbers. Um, so what was the question again? <laughs> no, that was just, uh, that was, it was just I'm about... I'm starting to ramble. Like, uh, you know... The advice you'd give to future yeah. and current legislators. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, I think I think the two things are one, look at the, look at the foreseeable consequences. I mean, yep. really understand what they are, and do what you can to eliminate the bad consequences. I mean, you know, obviously with legislation, you think you're going to create favorable consequences, but you're also going to create unfavorable ones yep. and outcomes that you didn't anticipate, and be ready to deal with that, uh, and take care of people. Uh, that you know that need help because of what you know what you've done mm-hmm. uh, or what you haven't done. Also, when you neglect things, you know, like I think there's like environmental neglect. I think is going on. You know, you have to look at how that affects people and how you know you might do something to alleviate uh, you know alleviate some of that. And you know, gambling is growing. You know, I I suspect Indiana will eventually because they there is great revenue in it. Uh, will approve marijuana. I mean, all their neighboring states, I think, have marijuana. I mean, no, Michigan does. I, I drive by a. I drive from South Bend. I drive by a little a little place in Edwardsburg. It looks like a garage. It, it's selling marijuana, and it's got a lineup of probably people from Indiana because it's two miles from the state line. Yeah. You know, lined up to buy it all the time, and. Um, 
you know, there are consequences from that. But I, you know, I think looking at that, and then, the, you know, the other thing is being attentive to the people who don't have spokesmen and lobbyists in the legislature, who don't, you know, people, because there's, most people don't have, yeah. you know, they don't belong to a group that's got a formal lobbyist, yep. you know, they don't have a voice, and sometimes even the lobbyists aren't the voice of everybody in the group, you know, I mean, the lobbyists don't speak for every school teacher, you know, AFL-CIO doesn't spoke for, speak for every member of the union, you know, I mean, they don't reflect the, always the views of everybody in the union. So you have to, you know, you have to reach out, you know, I mean, some of them will come to you, but you have to reach out and give their thoughts and ideas some uh, influence in the decisions that you make. Uh, and it's uh, imperative, I think, to do that because those are the people that get angry. You know, when they, you know, when they see that the whatever happens to them, you know, and maybe it's a consequence of laws or it's a consequence of a failure to, you know, appropriate something or do something or try to help them. Um, and, you know, their voice isn't being heard and they feel impotent. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the country now, people who feel that they're, you know, they don't have any influence, and so they just get angry instead of knowing how to channel their activity, you know, into having influence. Um, yeah. And the anger is, you know, coming out in unfortunate things that are being said publicly and being done publicly. And I, and I think part of that is just a consequence of not, um, you know, no, they're not, you know, the legislators, legislators from the Senate, you know, on down to the House, you know, the states, the city councils. I mean, those people need, you need to reach out to the people who are not represented. Um, I mean, a city council, of course, people can get to them easier than they can get to a legislature, or certainly can, they can get to Congress. That's why you have to reach out. It's not easy for people to reach the legislature. You know, they can write a letter or something, but, you know, to really influence, it's hard, and you've got to reach out to them. You know, you've got to go out in your community and talk to them, and... Um, Hopefully they'll, you know, talk to you in, um, you know, in less than four-letter words, more than four-letter words. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll talk, you know, some sense. Um, and, you know, that's what needs to happen. And it'll, it'll change the way people think, I think, sometimes. Uh, if they really talk to people who aren't represented by a group or who, you know, haven't, don't speak up for whatever reason. Um, or if they have, a, you know, have a lot of anger that they don't know how to express uh, very well, or a lot of problems that they don't know how to express. And some of it, you know, some things that happen, you know, the legislature's politics can't solve. But you can, there are also ways you can help people if you really know what their problems are and what they're, you know, what they're going through. And, um, I mean, that's one of the problems, I think, with Congress. They don't, you know, they don't really live in their communities anymore. They don't really have to earn a living in their communities. I think that's one advantage that state legislators and city councils and county councils and things like that have, is that they are living and making their uh, fortunes or they're making their living in a community. And that, you know, you so you know more about a community if you're making your living there as opposed to you're visiting a few weekends a year, you know, to give speeches and have fundraisers. And, um, you know, so I, mean, that's, I think that's part of the problem with Congress. They are too detached. Um, and I think maybe because of the supermajorities that some places have, 
in this country, either Democrat or Republican, uh, they perhaps aren't reaching out the way they should to a lot of people because they don't have to. Yeah, they they can ignore everybody else. They don't have to reach out, but we you know we need we people need to reach out. I mean, if you want to have a position of power, you need to reach out to people who aren't uh, standing at your door necessarily, and, and find out what their problems are and how you can deal with them, or certainly how you can eliminate unfortunate consequences of legislation that you pass about their, uh, you know, I mean, the legislation you pass about various occupations, you know, make a big difference. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so many occupations have, you know, I mean, they want to have a monopoly, you know, like lawyers. I mean, lawyers are the worst. You know, you have, I don't, well, I won't say the worst, but they're bad because they have a monopoly on who can be lawyers and they enforce it, you know, pretty, you know, pretty stringently. Yeah. And a lot of other occupations who have state control of them, of the occupation, you know, with regulations and everything. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, for monopoly purposes, for competitive purposes. And that's one of the things I learned in the legislature, which just popped into my mind, is so many people who come with, come with a problem to the legislature are really looking for the legislature to pass legislation to give them a competitive advantage in something. I mean, that goes with tax policy, all kinds of other regulations. They're, you know, they're not looking to be fair. They're looking to get a competitive advantage for their business or their type of business. Um, and, you know, you have to be aware of that and you have to look at that. And I, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't know much about what's going on here, but, or here or any place really. But I know that from my experience that that's what people came to the legislature for sometimes was to get a competitive imbalance to get mm -hmm. a competitive step up on their competitors in all kinds of occupations and businesses. And, you know, you should, I mean, people talk about a level trailing, you know, competitive field. Yeah. But everybody, so many people are out there trying to get a, get a competitive edge out of government. You know, it starts with the biggest companies and the most prominent names, you know, in the country in terms of the money that they have. Uh, you know, the Microsoft is, you know, uh, tries to get a competitive advantage. You know, Amazon, these big companies, you know, and it, it applies to small companies, too. Um, and legislators, I think, aren't always attuned to that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, attuned to what part they play in creating competitive advantages for certain businesses and occupations. Um, and, I mean, luckily for the legislature, the... Uh, lawyers, because of the way they're organized, um, they don't have, they can't get into that, you know. Right. <laughs> but you know, but they do, you know, they do get into it in medicine. <clears throat> but you know, the Supreme Court does a lot for, you know, of regulation of attorneys and stuff that you know the legislators can't really stick their nose into, which may or may not be unfortunate, depending on how you think feel about lawyers. But you know, there are. Um, you know, there are a lot of professions, with, uh, occupations, which the legislature does give people competitive advantages. Um, yeah. Well, my, my last question for you then is, uh, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? I think that what I think they need to know is that they have to speak up. If it's possible, they have to organize into a group which is always, you know, can present more 
influence. Uh, if there's 10 people speaking, you know, with one voice, or there are 10 people speaking with the same voice, you know, uh, and it makes sense, um, it, you know, in some ways, I mean, that's, of course, a very subjective <laughs> point of view. But, you know, the more people that you can get to agree with you, then the more important your voice is. And you, uh, and you have to reach out because, as I was saying earlier, the legislators, you know, particularly from the Congress level, uh, you know, are more and more detached from their constituents in terms of the time that they have available or they make available to really meet with non, with people in their constituency that aren't active in their particular party. You know, they really don't, they don't have the time in Congress. I don't think they have the time or they certainly don't make the time to do that as effectively as they should. And it's the state legislature is the same way. I mean, you're, you go to work, you know, you go four or five or six weeks, you're exhausted. You're not, you know, I mean, you don't think about, you know, am I going to go to the Qantas meeting and give them a speech, you know, or I'd rather yeah. stay home and take a snooze. Uh, but so you have, you know, you have to reach out to them. You have to organize um, in productive ways, you know. Not just be, you know, not be against something, but have some positive things to say about what you want to be in favor of. Uh, but organization works. Uh, I mean, I would tell anybody, you know, in, in a state like Indiana, try to find people around the state in the, you know, that believe in the same thing you believe in if, uh, and try to get them organized because the organized people are the ones um, that get the attention, you know. If, if, you know, a lawyer, you know, a legislator gets one letter, you know, maybe he blows it off, doesn't even respond to it. If he gets 10 letters or 20 on the same subject from his constituents and, you know, the guy sitting next to him is getting 10 from his constituents, then that has more influence, you know, on the legislator. You don't necessarily need to belong to a big lobbying organization, but you do have to be organized. Uh, if you've got a, an interest, a special interest, or a um, even a, or a financial interest, you know, you have to make legislation, you know, you let them know what the consequences are of what they just did or what they're contemplating because they don't, you don't always know it. I mean, it's really hard to know what the consequences are. Um, yeah. You know, to, you know, to foresee what they're going to be. Um, and sometimes they don't show up for a couple of years on some things that you pass that you thought was, you know, I mean, that, that always hurt me as a legislator, I mean, personally, when you would pass something you thought was good, you know, everybody had thought it was good, you know, hell, maybe it passes 92 to 2 or something, and you think it's good, and it's, uh, and two years later, somebody comes up and says, well, you passed this, you know, it, it hurt my business, you know, or mm -hmm. it uh, hurt my child in school or whatever, um, and... <clears throat> that's always something you don't, I mean, I never wanted to hear that, you know, but you did right. hear it. You did hear it from time to time, you know, that what you did was harmful. And then, you know, then it's possible sometimes you can go back and correct it, but sometimes you can't, you know, it becomes entrenched. You know, yeah. And so you can't always correct it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's always hurt. I mean, you always, I mean, if you're a human, you feel hurt when you've, when something like that has happened, you know, you've really sure. hurt somebody's, life in some way or another by some some act that you thought was good you know and uh it turned out not to be but um 
and so you just have you know you just have to be careful. It's it, it's hard to foresee stuff. I mean, I I understand that. Right. Well, is there anything that uh, I didn't ask about that you wanted to mention, or? Oh, uh, n- n- not really. I mean, okay. I think I've been on the soapbox about a few things. Yeah. I mean, there were a few other stuff, other things that I worked on. Sure. Um, you know, some of which I can't remember, but uh, you know, without digging into the right. record, but the you know right. the, the you know the record of what I sponsored and what I did, you know, it's there. Uh, I'm pretty proud of the things that I worked on and sponsored. Uh, with one or two exceptions, but um, you know, pretty much. I mean, I, I mean, one of them I remember. I was uh, we were in the the seventy three or seventy four when I was in. We were in the minority. It just popped into my head. I was asked to sponsor a bill that was supposed to be about the the safety of manhole covers. Okay. You know, and the somebody that I liked came to me and said, will you be my Republican sponsor? And I looked at it and it made sense to me. So I said, sure. Well, so we get to the committee meeting and it's been a 20-year fight <laughs> between, you know, a union and, you know, maybe an employer or two unions about this damn, these damn manhole covers, you know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Whoa, I didn't sign on for this, you know. Yeah. So I was kind of embarrassed by that, but, you know, it was... Along, you know, but I, you know, I just didn't know enough about yeah, it yeah. to have been smart enough to say no. But um, you know, so I mean, those those things, you know, those things kind of happen in the in the legislative process. But I, I basically feel very comfortable with my, you know, with my record and the stuff that I sponsored. I always tried to do, I always tried to do something that improved, uh, right, or reform things. Um, and uh, I tried not to get into helping somebody get a competitive advantage uh, over somebody else, uh, and that did come up from time to time. Um, you know, you have to watch out not do things as much as do things. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, because you can get you can get bit uh, pretty hard if you if you do something you really don't know what you're doing with like that manhole cover thing I was talking to you yeah, about. Yeah, that's funny, yeah. These, you know, a huge fight that had gone on for, it seemed like centuries, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Here I was taking sides and didn't even know there were two sides. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's, uh, ignorance is not always bliss. Right. <laughs> In that right. particular case, it was not bliss. Um, but no, I think this has been a good process. I really have enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, I hope somebody besides you listens to it sometime, <laughs> Ben. But if they don't, that's okay. I yeah. feel I feel good. About, you know, I feel good about my service. I feel good yeah. about. Uh, I feel good about what I said here. And um, if I think of anything profound, maybe in the future, I'll ask to come back and add something to it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, uh, Thank you so much for uh, being part of the project, and you yeah, uh, can preserve this history now. Yeah. So.